In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, legal team. Ceci here. So Angela and I are pretty busy right now, so we unfortunately can't release any new content. But given that the New Jersey reunion is going on right now, and there have been kind of re-upped allegations of someone going to the FBI and tattletelling on Teresa and Joe, we figured we would re-release our three-part series on their crimes and what landed them in prison, just to give you guys a reminder on what the heck happened. Um, Spoiler alert, no one had to go to the FBI and tip anyone off. Um, And you'll see why if you listen to this three-part series. What I've done is merge them all into one. So you have a lengthy, over three-hour-long episode to listen to, maybe on a long drive or something. Refresh yourself with what happened. You might hear the intro throughout. It's because we've just merged the episodes together. Um, And we promise that we'll have new content soon. We thought this was pretty topical right now and wanted to re-release it. We've also been experiencing some conflicts with our work. So just know we're working on new content behind the scenes. We will have new content out. Do not fret. But we wanted to re-release this just because of time constraints and because it's very topical again. Um, Again, if you ever want to reach out to us with any episode suggestions, email us at thebravodocket at gmail.com and we will happily take them. Thank you for supporting us and being a listener of The Bravo Docket. All right, here is the three-part series on Teresa and Joe. All right, welcome back to The Bravo Docket. I'm going to give it over to Angela to explain what this episode is going to be about. What are we covering? So we're finally covering our most requested episode so far, which is the Teresa and Joe crimes, including their bankruptcy fraud, the financial fraud, and we are covering it all. We, this will probably be, what, do we think maybe three episodes total? Yeah, I think three episodes is accurate. We're going through part one, which is going to be background on Teresa and Joe and then their bankruptcy filings, and then Ceci's got some really fascinating parallels to what's going on with Erica Jane right now and those bankruptcies, and we're super excited to talk about that. I downloaded Teresa's book, the one she wrote after she got out of prison, and I've got some 
insight from Teresa herself on these topics. So that should be interesting as well. Yeah, I'm sure she really understands legally what occurred to her. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) You guys should know that Ceci's shade is always the coldest shade. It is like... (laughs) Like, I tend to run very hot, and Ceci is, like, icy, icy cold. Like, she will literally just say, no, I'd really like to hear what you have to say about that to someone who's trying to, for example, mansplain the law to us who's not a lawyer. I kind of love it. Yeah. I think people think I'm serious most of the time, but I'm definitely not, and (laughs) I think that's the beauty of it. Uh, Very deadpan. Yeah. (laughs) So where are we starting the bankruptcy. Am, well, I'm going to start. I'm going to give some background on Teresa and Joe for everybody. Joe Judice, and I am going to say Judice the whole time. Teresa explained Thank in her. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, sorry, I, I, <laughs> I am keep Italian. You off. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that is the Italian pronunciation of the name. Um, Teresa actually explains in the book that she. Had al- they had always used the Italian pronunciation, which is Giudice, especially because Joe's dad would get really upset when people would pronounce it the American way, which is Judice. I am Italian. My grandma was born in Italy. My grandpa was born in Italy. Like, we're all super Italian. So whenever I see Giudice, or I hear, and, but then I hear somebody say Judice, it's kind of like makes me cringe a little bit. So, in honor of Giudice Sr., I am going to use Judice. Someone asked, like, because we asked for questions, and someone oh, yeah. was like, can you explain why before she went to prison, she used Judice, and then after she used Judice? Does she explain that? Yeah, she actually does. So it was, she said her daughters and her and Joe had never really been bothered by the American pronunciation, but they did correct people and try to pronounce it Judice while Joe's father was still alive. After, and we'll talk about this in the background, but after... They got indicted and arrested, um, and they were out on bond. Joe's dad died. Like, he passed away. And so he passed away, and then after he passed away, they just said uh, Judice after that. Hmm. But so they were always much more careful to use the correct pronunciation while he was alive. So listener, fan, we answered that question for you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Um, Teresa was born on May 18th, 1972. I couldn't find Joe's birthday, but they're the same age, according to the information I have. Teresa and Joe met in 1986 when Teresa was just 14. That's actually the same age I met my husband. We didn't get married until much, much later, but I did meet him when I was 14. Joe is an Italian citizen. He was born in Sorono, Italy. He was brought to Patterson, New Jersey by his parents when he was a one-year-old. And then, as we know, despite living in the United States since age one, Joe never got his U.S. citizenship. And we will go into that in, I think, our third episode, probably, (laughs) which will cover the divorce and the deportation and all of that. Okay, so they meet when they're 14, October 23rd, 1999. Teresa and Joe get married. Um, Before being cast on The Real Housewives of New Jersey, Teresa worked as an associate buyer in Macy's in New York City. I actually didn't know that she had like a real job. Mm-mm. That's not, that's isn't that kind job. of like a coveted job, like a buyer? Yeah. Like a, 
Yeah, <laughs> it is a good job. Yeah. yeah. I also didn't know that she had an actual degree. She has a degree from Berkeley College. She majored in fashion marketing and management. And then it says, uh, Joe worked in construction and in the restaurant business. Now, I thought this was kind of shady. Some of this information is from the indictment. Some of it's from interviews that Teresa's given, and some of it is from her book. But this information is from the indictment. So it says, from January 2001 to May 2008, according to the indictment, Teresa is unemployed and has no income. The reason why I think this is shady is because from 2001 to 2008, Teresa has three babies. So I don't really consider that unemployed. I, I understand technically she's not working, but I mean, having three small children to take care of is a lot of work. It's not like she's just sitting around. Mm -hmm. So January 2001, G is born. October 2004, Gabriella is born. Now, around 2005 is when some legal things that we know of start happening. Now, Ceci, I didn't ask you this beforehand, but did you watch The Sopranos? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Well, you should. I don't know. This, like, yeah, mob stuff, I'm not into it. It's I'm not, not my thing. either. I don't. Okay, but The Sopranos is incredibly good storytelling. The acting is good. The writing is good. It's, I think it's one of the best shows it's ever been on TV. So mm -hmm. I, I'll add I, it to my list. Add it to your list. Okay. I tend to not like things that glorify Italian criminals being Italian myself, but The Sopranos is an excellent show. <laughs> it's really good. So anyway, around 2005, this is when we start seeing some litigation that we can find. And there's some litigation involving Joe Didice and a person named Joe Mastropole, and they purchased real estate and a bunch of it had two LLCs and all the housing units were Section 8 housing. And the reason why I brought up the Sopranos is because there was this whole nefarious scheme where they were buying Section 8 housing, falsifying information to get mortgages for the Section 8 housing, and then doing criminal stuff and flipping it around and making a bunch of money off of it. Um, I'm not saying that that's what Mastropole and Giudice were doing. It just reminded me of that. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, there's two LLCs. They buy these properties and they use the LLC to, to purchase these various Section 8 properties. They had mortgages on them. Mastropoli at one point buys the other two LLCs from Giudice, but he does that by like securing a mortgage on the LLCs, like for the like the actual properties. Well, he pays out, like he he buys out the mortgages from the banks. And so he then secures them with the properties. Anyway, so they they ended up not getting along. So Mastropoli finances the purchase price of the two real estate holding LLCs for $586,000. He records a mortgage on the properties to secure the loan, but then Giudice sues Mastropoli and Mastropoli's mom seeking an order to refinance one of the properties. <laughs> and this I actually got from a New Jersey Court of Appeals record. So Mastropoli and Giuseppe met to try to resolve these differences. They met without counsel and agreed to settle their disputes. And I they wrote out the terms on a cocktail napkin and signed it, which is that... Well, that's just so funny that it's on a cocktail napkin because I remember learning in like contracts class, like the cocktail napkin contract, yeah. and whether or not that's enforceable. So it's just funny that they actually did it. And it's just, yeah, yeah. They, they, they actually did it. Uh, they did, however, 
formalize their cocktail napkin. Um, all I can think now is like somebody writing out a contract, like, and you didn't watch The Sopranos, but like from like a, like at the bat, the bada bing or whatever, you know. Anyway, so they write out the terms on a cocktail napkin. And this is from the appellate record, the New Jersey Court of Appeals. It says the napkin read $300,000 within 10 days, $260,000, six months, mortgage on 17 Webster, payment due six months with personal guarantee, not paid in six months, interest 10% per month. Like that's, that's what the cocktail napkin said. So then they formalize the terms of the settlement and they file these formalized settlement terms with the court on June 13th, 2007. Uh, the settlement agreement provided for the dismissal of the Juche's lawsuit regarding the, one of the properties and for the Mastropolis to refinance and satisfy all the outstanding mortgages on that property. Okay, I promise all this stuff is relevant to the bankruptcy and the upcoming fraud charges and all of that. This is background you're going to want to know. So, the Judiches the agreed to, and Teresa's on one of these mortgages, by the way. So the Judiches agreed to play, pay plaintiff $560,000 representing the amount owed to Mastropole from the buyout. There's some other terms. I won't give you all of them. But pursuant to the settlement agreement, one of the mortgages in Teresa's name was satisfied and Mastropole was paid $300,000 from the refinancing of one of the properties. Okay, so they get this whole lawsuit settled. That's on June 13th. 2007. Now, on June 14th, 2007, the very next day, Joe and Teresa file a fraudulent discharge of Mastropoli's mortgage on the properties. Judice forged Mastropoli's signature and the signature of the other parties, including the notary public. So when you have a mortgage that's like recorded, it's recorded on the deed to the property. And then to you know, take the lien from that mortgage off, you have to file the discharge of the mortgage. So that shows that you have the property free and clear. Well, they forged documents and this was litigated. I mean, this, is a, this isn't a, a judgment. This isn't speculation. This is the court found that these documents were forged. So this is in 2007. This is well before they are accused of fraud by the federal government, right? Now, Mastropoli does not know that Giudice has filed this fraudulent discharge of his mortgage. He doesn't find out for a year. So Giudice cancels the mortgage that Mastropoli held, and this is in 2007. So then this is also the time that the Real Housewives start casting for the Real Housewives of New Jersey. So this is kind of summarized from Teresa's book, but you just watched this. Like, you just rewatched a bunch of the episodes, right, Ceci? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you've watched like the first two seasons in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. What yes. did you what did you think of now I'm just gonna kinda get your opinion. What did you think of Teresa when you first saw her on the show? I actually really liked her. Like really, really liked her. I don't yeah. know if that's how people watching it at the time felt, but she just came across so personable and like a family woman. She loved her daughters, her kids were cute. I don't think they were meant for to be actresses like Gia, but was not <laughs> meant to be an actress. I'm sorry, Gia. But yeah, I really liked her. I thought she was the most down to earth. She was funny. I don't know. Effervescent. Yeah. I agree. Season one, I really enjoyed watching her. She wasn't necessarily in the forefront of all of the drama, but she looked like that fun friend that you definitely want to like 
have come over, have hang out. I just loved her interactions with her children. And then she was really ridiculous in the fun way that we like our housewives to be. So I agree with that. Yeah. Even though she had like the blow up at the end of, yeah, you know, <laughs> at the end of the season, I, I felt for her like she was pissed. So yeah. Sorry. What were you saying? No, I was going to say, so what do you, what did you think of some of the other people on like the first season of Real Housewives of New Jersey? Well, I remember back when I watched it, like very first, like back when it was airing, I watched it and I used to love Caroline Manzo. I was like, wow, she's like the best mom ever. Like she has such a great family. And then watching it back, I was like, and knowing what I know now about the Manzo stuff, which I think we'll cover later. I was like, oh, she said really awful things to her children I don't know, like her daughter questioned her intelligence a lot. I, it just made me uncomfortable. And then Jacqueline, I always thought was a sweetheart. I, I know things through osmosis now about how she's like, you know, like I'm not fully caught up. I, I'm going to admit I'm not fully caught up, but I know things about everyone on the cast through osmosis. So like watching it back and I'm like questioning my initial feelings on these people. But yeah. I always really liked Dina, but I'm always going to like a housewife with a cat. Well, yeah, she was like totally normal and great. Yeah, I liked her. Yeah. So according to Teresa's book, now this is Teresa's words, not her words exactly. This isn't an exact quote, but this is what Teresa says. According to Teresa's book, they went to the Chateau Salon in Franklin Lakes. This is the real housewife sirens media producers where everyone gets their hair done. And they asked the owner, Victor Castro, if he could recommend any clients with over the top lifestyles. Apparently, Jacqueline and Dina were recommended right away. Jacqueline wanted to do it. Dina was hesitant. And Teresa says that Dina only agreed to be on the show to bring attention to Project Ladybug, which is that's Dina's that's Dina's charity that with that helps kids with like, like really bad illnesses, right? Is it cancer? I think it was cancer. Yeah. According in the way this was written in the book by <laughs> Teresa, according to Teresa, Jacqueline also recommended Daniel Staub and then Dina recommended Teresa. Teresa claimed she was hesitant and that Joe did not want to do the show. Is that the salon? Sorry, I'm stuck on the salon part where yeah. they were cast. Is that the salon where in the first season they like would always meet up and like have the drama and stuff? I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, look I think it, up, it is. I think it is. I think, I think it, it is. I think so. It has those like old antique gold mirrors at each station and each chair is like separated and it's not like the really, really nice chairs. You know what I mean? I think that's it. Anyway. I think you're right. Yeah. Look that up and then let us know for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, think, I, I think you're right. So Teresa says that 11 months after she was first approached by the producers that she went to a Chinese restaurant in Franklin Lakes with Jacqueline and that Jacqueline pulled out a contract for Teresa. Teresa says she was feeling spontaneous, so she signed it right then and there with no lawyer to look over it or anything. And she says Jacqueline took it and gave it back to the producers. Teresa says she didn't get paid much for the first season and that she spent all the money on show-related expenses, and I put show-related in quotes, like dresses, shoes, and handbags. And so she claimed she didn't make any money the first season. One kind of relatable thing I thought that Teresa said in the book was that, you know how when you say something and then you lay awake at night thinking, I can't believe I said that, or what if they interpret it this way, and you keep replaying it in your head, and she says, like, imagine blurting out something cringy or nasty on camera and then wondering if it's going to air on TV, which is one reason why I would never do a reality show. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I regret saying stuff when we're recording the podcast. 
at least I can delete it. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can, I have control over it. Can you imagine if someone else like was, I don't know, we don't say anything terrible, but sometimes, you know, I say unintelligent things. Can you imagine like someone like having to edit this for us? Oh yeah. And we have no say, you know? I mean, this is like, this is just a pod, you know, legal podcast, but like. Well, we get to edit it ourselves. So if we really hate it, either I can be like, Sessie, take that out (laughs) or whatever. Or, you know, we have control over it. So it doesn't, but like giving somebody else the control over editing. And then like we talked about in our Southern Charm episode, also the ability to completely manipulate that to make you look however they want. No, I don't like we, we are way too, I think as attorneys, also like we are controlling would it in a good you know in a good way <laughs> mm-hmm. like yeah it would be very difficult so Teresa talks about how doing the show and earning money for appearances made her feel good and that you know it felt good for her to contribute to the household and her daughter's college funds and how <laughs> validating that was <laughs> she talks about doing appearances and how like those days were really long and her beloved makeup artist Priscilla Diastasio would go to the hotel at midnight and have her ready to film at 4.30 a.m. and that Priscilla would do her makeup and hair at night and then tuck her into bed like a mummy with her makeup done and her hair spread out on the pillow so it wouldn't get messed up. I wouldn't sleep with that. I would love to be able to do that when I have to be up super early for something and just wake up and be ready to go. But there's no way. Like if I actually fell asleep, I'd be drooling and rolling. Like I couldn't maintain that Mm -mm. position and sleep. No, I'm a side sleeper, so that wouldn't happen. (laughs) So this is 2007, which is also when the first signs of the impending financial crisis appeared in the U.S. And because a lot of this stuff is about bankruptcies and mortgage fraud, I think we need to talk about this a little bit. Now, I graduated from law school in 2008. And fortunately, Mm. I had a job doing railroad litigation and the railroads were doing fine. They literally had all the money. They were great. But a lot of people that I graduated with weren't able to get jobs or they weren't able to keep jobs that they had. There was a lot of places that just weren't hiring people. I mean, the U.S. government let Lehman Brothers fail. I mean, if you remember, they rescued AIG. Merrill Lynch is purchased by Bank of America at like a fire sale price. Unemployment persisted at reported rates of 10%, but many believe it was actually as high as 17%. The FDIC resolved over 25 failed banking institutions in 2008. So, like, banks were failing. Do you remember this? How, like, where were you in 2000? I'm much older than you, so. (laughs) I was graduating. That's when I graduated high school. So I was going into college, and there was, like, a concern about what would come next after college because, you know, it was an unknown time. I don't really remember what caused it even though i watched that movie about it what was it like the big the big short that's a great movie the big short yeah (laughs) i don't know i gloss over on some of this stuff (laughs) yeah put simply in the movie yeah (laughs) put as simply as possible banks were giving out loans to people that really couldn't pay them back and Mm -hmm. they were giving out loan and they were also had variable interest rates and so the banks weren't really doing due diligence on whether or not people could afford to pay these loans back or if they had the resources. And then people were also getting the loans and not really recognizing the fact that the interest rate was going to double or quadruple and that they wouldn't be able to afford their mortgage payments in a couple years. And then, you know, huge institutions were buying these subprime mortgages and 
leveraging against them. It was it was all a big mess. The big again, the big short, excellent movie. You should watch it. But also like this also explains why Teresa and Joe were able to get some of these mortgages without really being able to get them. I mean, they shouldn't have been given some of these mortgages, but they were fairly easily able to manipulate documents, forge documents to obtain a bunch of mortgages. So all of this is going on. Now, also, according to the indictment, 2006, they didn't file federal tax returns. 2007, they didn't file federal tax returns. And so according to the indictment, between 2004 and 2008, the Dujiches apply for and are granted several loans using falsified information, W-2s, and falsified tax returns. According to the indictment, by the beginning of 2008, Teresa and Joe received more than $3.5 million in loans by using false information in their documents and lying about their income. Now, I would just like to say in like 2013, I think, I had gotten a large settlement. I had a huge chunk of money. I had verifiable income. And I had enough money to like pay a huge down payment on a piece of property with a house and a barn on it. The bank would not give me a loan. I was so frustrated. I was like, I literally felt like that scene in Pretty Woman when she's sitting there like in the office of the hotel manager. And she's like, but I have all this money and they just like, like, like I'm trying to give it to them and they won't take it from me. And I have all this money. That's literally how I felt. So I had... I had all this money and they they would not give me a loan. It was so hard to get loans after that, even if you were qualified and had a huge down payment because the laws changed. Similar to you, I, the, I don't know how similar this is, but I just like applied for an apartment and got it. And I have a good paying job and yeah. I'm, you know, financially secure. But every time they do like the credit background check, my like ass cheeks clench up because I'm like, what if they say no? Like, but, yeah. but it's crazy to me that someone like Teresa and Joe not only don't have that fear in 2007, but that they lie to get those loans when it's like nowadays people like you and I are like, you can't get a loan or are fearful about, you know, things like credit checks or whatnot. So, Yeah. I had a 25% cash down payment and it was verifiable where that money came from. I'm like, I am an attorney. <laughs> yeah. I've been yeah. an attorney for years. This is how I made them. I had it. I had all, I mean, on all my documents were real and they still would not give me the loan. Mm-hmm. It was, it was so but frustrating. I guess, I guess they're, they don't want another financial crisis like 2008. So yeah, I, I mean, the, from what I understand, like the protections are now in place to ensure that you can pay back the loan and that they don't run into these situations like they did back then. So, yeah, you know, and I'm actually glad I didn't get that property. That's not where my life was supposed to go. But at the time, it was very frustrating. But I'm, I'm pointing this out to say that the, the pendulum. Changed. Yeah, it's like it was very easy to get mortgages and then it became very difficult. And now it's kind of leveled out some. All right. So between, like I said, between 2004, 2008, they receive more than 3.5 million in loans using false information in their documents and lying about their income. Now, April 20th, 2009, they've been on the show. Like they started on the show in 2009. Yes, May 2009. So they're filming in like 2000, 
late 2008, early 2009. And then they, May 2009, The Real Housewives of New Jersey premieres on Bravo and the Judices appear for the first time. Then September 2009, their fourth child, Adriana, is born. And then October 19th, 2009, Master Pole, the guy we mentioned earlier, files pleadings with the court seeking the unpaid $260,000. So then one week before they file for bankruptcy, Teresa signs a book contract with Hyperion dated October 22nd, 2009, which was then signed by Teresa, meaning it was finalized on November 19th, 2009. In the book contract, Teresa was to receive an advance of $250,000 and an additional advance of $30,000, as well as royalties based on the sales of her cookbook. So that's the skinny Italian cookbook that she did. Do you remember? I mean, you watched it, but like it did show her in the first season cooking with like her Italian family, like in their garage and making huge amounts of pasta sauce and like the big Mm -hmm. bats and everything. I loved that scene. I know I I did too. That was really endearing. And, you know, I think her cookbook did sell well. Like it was really endearing. And it, Mm -hmm. you know, and Teresa pronouncing ingredients and like, it was cute. It was, mm-hmm. I, it was cute. And her cute. kids like carrying buckets of tomatoes. Yeah. And I loved her it. Adorable, I, loved I it. loved it too. I think a lot of people did. So a week before they file for bankruptcy, she receives that contract or the contract's drafted. Then October, so like all of this stuff happens in very quick succession. So the book contract is, is drafted October 22nd, 2009. Then because of the previous lawsuit that had happened with Master Poli, like the judge pretty much immediately enters a judgment. So like a day after the book contract is drafted, October 23rd, 2009, Master Poli wins the civil lawsuit against Judice for $260,000. And that's the lawsuit about Judice forging Mastropoli's name on mortgage documents, not good, for an investment property that they jointly owned in New Jersey. And then in addition to forging Mastropoli's signature, Judice also stole the notary stamp of his previous assistant and <laughs> used it to notarize mortgage documents in order to acquire bank loans and pocket the profits. Who is this guy, Robert? Uh, Robert? Who's the guy from the Mary episode? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's the same. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. It's the same thing. Robert Cosby. Oh, my God. About, yes. yes. Why can't yeah. I not remember his last name? Yeah. This is Robert yeah. Cosby all over again. Yeah, because that's literally Robert Cosby. Mary Cosby's husband and step-grandpa was found to be in a civil jury trial liable for falsifying documents on homeownership records, like on deeds, on quitclaim deeds. So, yeah, <laughs> not good. <laughs> So this is this is October 23rd 2009 Master Poli you know gets the judgment the civil judgment so this isn't criminal this is civil but in the civil judgment it is found that these forgeries were done so that's October 23rd 2009 then October 29th 2009 the Dujiches file for bankruptcy and that's federal they claim they have 8.7 million in liabilities they have to pay that's a lot mhm is for two people. Mm-hmm. And I guess like the kids too, but they're not out running up credit cards yet. Like that's just that's a lot. But when you file for bankruptcy, that gives you immediate protection from all of your creditors because like we talked about in our the Girardi like, update. Yeah, I, I was like having I was like I was like putting the words Girardi and Judice like together in my brain and I couldn't <laughs> separate them. In our Girardi episodes, we talked about how the bankruptcy court, once a, once the bankruptcy is filed, the bankruptcy court has like priority and is literally like 
you know, like your mom and dad saying what you can and can't do with your stuff. And yeah. they can also stop creditors from executing yeah. judgments against you because it's the bankruptcy court that gets to say. They just yeah. stay it. Yes. That's the legal term. They stay the, the other lawsuits and everything. Right. Okay. So they file for bankruptcy claiming they have $8.7 in liabilities. Wasn't it – do you remember who was it that brought up the bankruptcy on the show that Teresa got really mad about? Was it Jacqueline? I don't remember. I think it might have been Jacqueline. In response – Mastropoli files an adversary action to block the discharge of the debt that's owed to him. So I think that what maybe got the federal government agencies, the DOJ, kind of keyed in on what Teresa and Joe were doing is the fact that they filed for bankruptcy and then this adversary action is immediately filed within the bankruptcy saying, look, there's been mortgage fraud. Because that brought it into like the federal realm. And then it's not like these federal guys don't talk to each other. <laughs> it's like if it were me, I'd be sending an email over to the DOJ being like, you might want to look at this, these people. Do you want to talk about their statement of financial affairs? Yes. Okay. I don't know why. Like, I think everyone knows by now I hate money and I hate numbers. But I've been loving looking through the statement of financial affairs, both in this case and in the Girardi bankruptcies. Like, love it. I don't know. Maybe because I like to picture what they bought. I don't know. I, I love it as well. I mean, but you've been doing an excellent job of it. <laughs> I'm like obsessed. Yeah, I guess notably first that this bankruptcy is similar to Tom's bankruptcy in that it's a chapter seven bankruptcy. And like we talked about before, that's the fire sale one yeah. where they're trying to just, you know, sell stuff at a great price, I guess, to repay creditors. It's not a restructuring one like what Sonia Morgan's was. But unlike Tom's, this bankruptcy was voluntary, whereas Tom's was filed against him involuntarily. So just noting that. But yeah, so they had to file a statement of financial affairs. It was a 60-page document. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like there was something awry about this as well. This is like the allegations that came out kind of maybe stemmed from what they put in this document. Yes, yes. Ceci's going to give you all like the juicy details about like what they put in there, but... Okay, so I've just given you the timeline about them being on the show and Teresa getting the cookbook deal and all of this. They did not put in their statement of financial affairs the fact that she had gotten that book deal and the fact that she was getting the advance and the fact that she was also getting an additional $30,000 in addition to like the two hundred and fifty or whatever, and then that she was going to get royalties. They didn't disclose the fact that she had the TG Fabulicious company. <laughs> There's... I mean, it's things that were talked about on television. And as soon as like the Real Housewives of New Jersey came out, it was super popular. I mean, they even talked about it on like the Emmys. Like they showed like Teresa flipping the table. I mean, it was like super in like the common, like, th like we were all talking about it when it came out. Mm -hmm. But despite the fact that these things were open and notorious, they failed to put them in their financial statements, which, yeah. Doesn't make Crazy. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> duh, you should put that in there. But yeah, so it's a 60-page document. My understanding is that you list all of your assets, you, ask, you list all of your liabilities, and that's kind of how they discuss or like determine what you have to pay and what you have to pay. So they listed their properties and their ownership interest in it, which Angela discussed some of the properties earlier. They included personal property, like cash on hand, investments, appliances. They put their refrigerator. I thought that was funny. Mm -hmm. Goods, 
furniture, jewelry, their laptops. My favorite one is that they put their dogs and valued them at $600. Yeah. If that was me, yeah, I would have been like, my dog is priceless. It would have been like one of those um, visa commercials where they're like, what is it? They like list out all the things and then yeah, it's moment with your dog, priceless. Priceless. Yeah. (laughs) I'd been like, there's no bankruptcy here. My dog is worth everything on the earth. So, And then they list the creditors that have secured claims, like the mortgage companies, some banks. Then there were creditors with unsecured claims. There was listed taxes and other debts to government agencies. The box was checked. The New York Department of Finance for parking violations of $75. I guess one of them had a $75 parking ticket. And that goes in this statement of financial affairs. Yeah, you're supposed to you're supposed to list everything. And like we talked about with Erica Jane and Tom Girardi and Girardi Keys, everything has to be on there. And the they are so thorough and then also they have an appraiser that will come if there's going to be a sale and then the appraiser will go through and appraise everything and that was done in this case as well i mean and they went through and appraised the the baby's the stuff in the baby's room even like you know pink chandelier in baby's room and like every like everything they appraise everything yeah like we know from tom's law firm case they put everything literally everything up from his law firm in there down to the lingerie that were was in his drawer. I don't know why he had lingerie in his drawer, but, you know, like literally everything was in there. Even the like empty bottles of wine were put up for auction. We know who they has just, that lingerie now. We do know who has <laughs> it's that not lingerie. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing it right now. No, no she's not. <laughs> oh, man, you wore uh, leopard print. I was going to suggest we both wear leopard print because it was Jersey. Now I want to go change. it's not leopard print lingerie by the way it's a really cute top though (laughs) yeah so like in the schedule one which is or schedule i excuse me which is the current income she puts she's an actress slash tv personality and is paid 7,080 per month joe puts that he owns a stucco and stone company and makes 3,250 dollars per month that seems really low for owning a company and then five thousand dollars monthly assistance from family members and so combined, they have an income of $15,333. They then list their expenditures. So it's like rent, food, utilities, all that stuff. And somehow that too also equals $15,333. Hmm. So they're essentially saying they don't, they make $15,000 and they spend $15,000 a month and can't repay all these debts that are owed. So. I just thought that was kind of weird that the amounts added up perfectly. I don't know if that's supposed to happen, but that was weird to me. Yeah. I mean, so like in one of the later pleadings, the one of the trustees says that they state their gross income from employment, trade, profession, or operation of businesses was $575,000 in 2008, $598,000 in 2007, and $312,000 in 2006. And it, I don't know why it went up so much in 2007. But again, like they have to, it is actually Teresa and Joe that sign these documents under the penalty of perjury saying this is correct, which is really important (laughs) because you're the one verifying that it's correct, not your attorney. You are saying this is all I've got. So when Erica is asked to list all of her possessions, she will be the one that has to sign and say all of this is correct. And yeah, 
she better learn from Teresa and Joe and not leave anything out, even accidentally. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's already been alleged that she's left something out. I don't, I don't know if she's had to fill out a schedule like this yet, but the trustee yesterday filed an amended complaint. And by yesterday, I mean August 26th, for those listening later, saying that Erica has concealed income that she's receiving from a settlement that was supposed to be paid to Tom's law firm. So is that she's the, already the lottery settlement? Yeah. Yeah. The lottery yeah. settlement, which I can explain later, but yeah. Do you want me to talk about the parallels with the schedule that was filed? Yes. By the bankruptcy trustee? Yes. So Similar to how Teresa and Joe had to file their own statement of assets, the trustee in the law firm bankruptcy filed one on behalf of Tom's law firm. And I don't practice bankruptcy law, but from what I gather, she had to file it instead of the law firm because of how messy it was. And I believe because Tom just doesn't know where the money went. So it's like she put her gloves on and was like, I'm going to dig into this. Yeah, the the trustee in the bankruptcy has had to do so much work. And I think she noted in there that the records were not done, like they weren't kept very well. And that, I mean, I think there's even been notations that some of it was just like even written down on like a pencil and paper. And so she's had to literally go through and try to recreate doing like forensic accounting, this type of stuff that Sessie's talking about. Yeah. She said, suffice it to say that the debtor's accounting offices were not well maintained and the debtor is the law firm. Financial records and other mail and papers were piled high on each and every flat surface and in no discernible order. Sounds like a hoarder situation of financial documents. And again, this is this is the Girardi case. So we're doing the parallels between the Girardi case and then the Judice's issues in the bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm only bringing it up because it's wild how we were researching for this case. And I'm sitting here reading the schedules and statements for Joe and Teresa, and then suddenly the 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 trustee files one for the bankruptcy for Girardi, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy! Like, yeah. And just to, I, I'll touch on it really briefly. This one was 405 pages long, whereas earlier I said to- Teresa and Joe's was 40 pages. And of course, this is a law firm, so you know they're bringing in a bunch of money, and a lot is going out, and. They list everything. They said there's 127 bank accounts that Tom Girardi's firm had. They list loans that may need payouts. They list creditors. They say he may owe over $100 million. And I thought this part was interesting. It shows a ton of Amex payments on behalf of EJ EJ Global LLC. And it adds up what the trustee says, to $25 million. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with the $20 million loan that they keep bringing up. But it's these interesting, like, it looks like she just was given a credit card and made, just went on a shopping spree. They're on specific dates as well. So March 26, 2020, she just, there's a bunch of payments made. March 10, 2020, same thing, a ton. January 29, 2020, January 1st, 2020. And it's just a bunch of payments. And I don't understand why, but yeah. I I mean, from looking at it, I mean, I, when we first got that huge document, I went in and like, just did a search for how many times just the word EJ Global appeared. And it was, and I, I was looking at the smaller document. 
like that was only like 200 something pages and it was like ej the word ej global appeared like 427 times or, or, 429 429 times just in that small the smaller document and so i'm just guessing and speculating here but it looks to me like she didn't it's not like she was like running the business with like an accountant she was literally just given an american express card with a super high you know, limit and was just like, here, just use this to pay for whatever you need. And so there was no mm-hmm. checks and balances. There was no like worrying about how much is coming in. There was no like accounts receivable. There wasn't anything that a normal business person would do. It was, here's a, here's a credit card. Have at it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> a firm credit card. Yeah. I had to use the firm credit card recently to like file some copyright registrations and they were like, as soon as you charge something, you have to email us the receipt and what client it belongs to. Right. Like instantly, right? Maybe she didn't know it was a law firm credit card. It doesn't matter whether or not she knew, but it's just wild to me that someone gave her an Amex and she spent over $20 million on that card. Like, I guess it's easy to do when you're not worried about making the payment on the credit card. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like, and so was that, was that the one that's like, it's over eight years. It's that much money because it, it comes out to like 350 something about $350,000 a year over eight years. And that does make it make at least more sense that, okay, that's like the, how much it costs to be Erica Jane. And I, so Tom was ostensibly the sole proprietor, the sole owner of the Girardi Keys company, LLC or whatever it was, partnership. And so he was supposedly the only one that had control over the finances. That seems like it has been corroborated. And so Tom was just treating the business like his personal bank account, but you're really not supposed to do that. When you Mm -hmm. have an LLC or when you have a business, you're supposed to not commingle the funds like that because you're supposed to keep accurate records for what is what, especially if you get audited by the IRS So it's a very messy, sloppy way of doing things. Don't do it that way. As we go through, jump in with anything that is parallel. Yeah, or similar to like what we're talking about with Teresa and Joe. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me when going through this is that like Teresa and Joe's stuff is that it seemed like they had a lot of chances to maybe get it right or correct it. And it just wasn't done. So they filed the bankruptcy October 29, 2009. They have their statement of financial affairs. Then not much later, on November 18th, 2009, the panel trustee appointed in the case mailed a letter to the Judice's attorney and raised several discrepancies. And then also their secured creditor, Wachovia Bank, that had given them mortgages. And the letter talked about, hey, there's some things that are not on here. Also, like in November 20th, 2009, the bankruptcy trustee sent a letter to Teresa and Joe requesting copies of their federal tax returns for 2006, 2007, and 2008 for documents related to all the real property they owned, a list of their jewelry, the 2007 and 2008 federal tax returns for the entities identified, so the LLCs that we talked about on the schedules filed with Teresa and Joe's bankruptcy petition, copies of bank statements and canceled checks for their bank accounts for the year leading up to the petition, and then all of the cash payments exceeding $750 made during the year prior to filing their bankruptcy petition. And then they wanted copies of any contracts with Bravo Entertainment and copies of pay stubs from April through November 2009. So at this point, the bankruptcy trustee is like, this stuff doesn't look right. It's not matching up. 
clearly someone there had seen them on TV <laughs> and was like, this is not, this isn't matching up. So we need to fix this. So that was November 20th, 2009. September 17th, 2009, Teresa and Joe amended several schedules and they amended their statement of financial affairs. So they added previously undisclosed properties. So they had a couple properties on Lexington Avenue and Clifton, New Jersey. They added those. They added Joe Judice's previously undisclosed checking account. And that, even though it only had a balance of $1,000, they <laughs> added three businesses. I don't know why he had a bank account, just a random $1,000 in it, but apparently he did. Well, Tom's law firm had 127 bank accounts. That so That blows my mind. Clearly, clearly we're not doing it right. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Um, they also, I mean, they. this all should have been on their first schedule, but like this is like yeah. basic stuff. So like their amended schedule B added three businesses, which is G&G Realty Holding, G&G Stucco and Stone Specialist, and then... 1575 Maple Avenue Associates LLC. They also added three vehicles that they apparently forgot they owned and a boat that they forgot they had. I'm putting forgotten quotes. Um, and then they added a 2007 Cadillac Escalade, a 2005 Ford F350 long bed truck, a Kawasaki like Forerunner, and then a Sea-Doo sport boat. So that's Jesus. a lot. Of, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff on there that was not added. Oh, and then they, they also forgot to add an undisclosed lease for a 2005 Maserati. So they put that on there as well. It's funny that they forgot the Cadillac. I don't know why I'm stuck on the Cadillac because I was like going through the docket and looking and Cadillac was someone who said like, we need you to lift the stay so we could get our money that we deserve from Teresa and Joe. Right. So it's weird that they didn't put that they have a Cadillac, even though Cadillac was like, hey, I need my payment. Yeah. Like Cadillac as a creditor was like, you owe me $33,000. And they didn't even put the car in their statement. That's insane. Yeah. So we talked about how they remembered they had an additional three vehicles, a boat, a Cadillac Escalade, a Ford F-350, a Kawasaki 4Runner, and a They And then they also remembered that they had a lease on a 2005 Maserati. This is also when they amended their Schedule I to disclose that as of the petition date that she had been, Teresa had been employed for one month by Sirens Media LLC with $7,083.33 in gross monthly income. And again, they signed this. My cat is talking. Warlock. <laughs> oh my God. Warlock, either come here. So they did disclose on Schedule I that as of the petition date, that means the date that they filed the bankruptcy, that Teresa had been employed for one month. I'm, that's my cat talking. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, Warlock, can I just finish this one thing? Okay. So finally, on Schedule I, that's when they disclosed that Teresa had around $7,000 in gross monthly income from Sirens Media, which is the company that does the production for Real Housewives of New Jersey. And again, this is, they sign this saying that they are declaring that all of this is true under the penalty of perjury and that all of this is correct. Then January 8th, 2010, they file a second amended statement affairs of affairs and testify that that information was correct. So it took them two chances or two tries to 
remember what they owed or, and owned. Correct. They also added that they had more debts in 2010. So their total unsecured debts in, on March 2nd, 2010 were $7,192,723.47. Uh, of the total unsecured debt listed on the second amended Schedule F, 89000 was attributable to consumer credit cards and store credit at Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus, and Nordstrom. <laughs> so that honestly sounds accurate, having seen Teresa on the show. So that means that almost $90,000 was stuff she owed at a Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus, and Nordstrom credit cards? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I remember watching the show and watching her shop for the girls and herself. And, you know, she really enjoyed dressing them all up. And she, you know, had that huge house with a giant closet to put stuff in. That's why you get a small house. So you don't feel like you have to fill it with all this <laughs> stuff. When I, when I watched, like the show and saw that house and how big it was, I mean, honestly, that was one of my first thoughts was like, it would just be exhausting to have to fill mm -hmm. that house with stuff. Exhausting. Yeah. yeah. No, I lived in a studio and I felt liberated that I didn't have to buy a bunch of furniture. It was just like, hmm, here's a bed. There's a couch. Yeah. I'm good. There's something really freeing about just only having stuff that you really, really use and enjoy. Like, mm -hmm. just, like, we're, we love going and finding, like, fun stuff for our house, which is not that big, but it's like... We have more of like a maximalist style. So we get to have like lots of things, but it's like all, and a lot of it is from thrift stores. It's just, yeah. I call our style friendly Beetlejuice, which won't make sense to a lot of people, but it's like dark <laughs> maximalism. <laughs> anyway. I like that. Yeah. Um, so they've had, they've filed these updated amended schedules. So they've had a couple chances now, and they've definitely had the trustee pointing out to them, hey, there's discrepancies, meaning like, you're not getting this right. You need to fix it. The trustee asked for a 2004 examination of both Teresa and Joe. And Ceci, we have talked about these in the Girardi case. Do you want to just briefly remind everybody the 2004 examinations, like what they are and who they've been requested of in the Girardi case? Yeah, so if you remember, we mentioned that in the Girardi bankruptcies, they've asked to depose and get certain documents from, it's kind of like a subpoena on a third party is the way I see it, but in a bankruptcy context. So you're trying to get testimony and documents from people not necessarily involved in the case as named parties. They're just kind of tangentially involved in the case. So in this instance, it's Erica's landlord. They're like, how the heck are you paying for your rent? Her divorce attorney and her financial manager. They also asked, I don't know if it was in the firm bankruptcy or the other one, they asked for Tom's brother, the one who's running yeah. the conservatorship to testify and produce documents. So that is that. Yeah. So here there hasn't been a special counsel assigned to examine Teresa and Joe. It's just the trustee saying this doesn't look right we want to know what's going on. So they asked for what's called a Rule 2004 examination, which is like Ceci just said is exactly what's going on right now in the Girardi bankruptcies. So they do one of Teresa and Teresa testifies under oath. And when she testifies under oath, she admits that she has a bank account with Lankland Bank and that she's the only person with signature authority on that account. 
She also oh, tes- gosh. I yeah. She also <laughs> testifies that she owned a previously undisclosed business by the name of TG Fabulicious LLC, of which she is the sole member. She also testified that she had a previously undisclosed deal with Hyperion, the one we mentioned earlier, which they, I guess, are an imprint of Buena Vista Books, to publish the previously undisclosed cookbook titled Skinny Italian. So, Ugh. like, which <laughs> You had I, so many chances. Well, I... This is one of the things I really don't understand because they they have a bankruptcy attorney. The bankruptcy attorney is, you know, getting the information, putting it in the documents, having them assume I'm assuming read them and then having them sign them that they're accurate. They they know they're on TV and that people are watching them. I mean, like the skinny Italian was like part of her storyline. I mean, like it's like the most obvious stuff they're somehow failing to put in these documents. And it I mean, it does make me wonder if Teresa didn't know that the stuff wasn't in there. I don't really see Teresa reading legal flight. Like, I don't see her sitting like down. Like I am sitting <laughs> I don't see. After work, I'm like reading all these schedules with interest. Yeah. No, yeah, she's not getting excited about like reading any. Like, you and I are like do lawyer stuff all day and then happily come home and download pleadings from Real Housewife cases <laughs> and pour over them. Like, I've got my cat sitting next to me on the couch and I'm I'm reading a, you know, pleading in a Real Housewives case. I don't see Teresa doing that even when it's her own loss. You know, I don't see her doing that. Mm-mm. But it also seems like, why would why didn't her attorney call and ask for that? And she does sue her attorney over this later. And we'll talk about that. But it is, I do want to just point out, though, as much as I'm saying that, it is on you, the person signing the document, promising that it is accurate and true and correct under the penalty of perjury. It is your responsibility to make sure that that's accurate, even if you have an attorney in a bankruptcy case or even when you're signing your mortgage documents for your house, which is always a super stressful situation and like they're just throwing paperwork at you. Mm-hmm. You're still the one responsible when you sign that. You're the one responsible for knowing what's on there, and the fact yeah. that all, like the timing that we talked about, the fact that they filed for bankruptcy like a week before they filed for bankruptcy, the contract for the skinny Italian book was drafted, like if like that's the time that it's dated, so that's the time that's like given to her, and then a week after they file for bankruptcy is when like she finalizes it. That's like the timing is just it's really hard to say that like it's yeah negligence on her part like his yeah like it should have been top of mind for her to include that it's like a really exciting thing for her mm-hmm. you knew you knew yeah. you knew you got two hundred fifty thousand dollars. you knew also like you're the sole member of the llc and sutton in the real housewives of beverly hills as she has said like you're responsible for that especially when you're the sole member i have to say i'm very proud of some of sutton's statements and behavior on the real housewives of beverly hills and garcelle i was literally actually like clapping for her when she was not letting mm-hmm. some of that stuff go yeah <laughs> yeah most recent episodes i just want to say if i was the trustee and i was like i wonder if Teresa isn't being accurate i would go and search up every fabulicious or licious entity out there and see if she's the owner of them because it's funny she has like fabulicious and then some other licious one just as a comical aside well she had whatever cocktail that was the fabellini which I tried yeah. to I tried to find because I was gonna have it sent to your house <laughs> for this episode, but no one's selling. I couldn't find it anywhere, and like the website, 
the Fabellini website or whatever, like, wasn't working. Like, so I couldn't find it anywhere. Because I was going to have, like, a case of it sent to your cute. house. <laughs> you could have um, gotten me some black water. I would have appreciated some of that. Wasn't it with the Manzos? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Like, it's water, <laughs> but black. Okay. Anyway. It was the charcoal <laughs> trend, to be fair. There was a time where char- charcoal was everywhere, so... And charcoal filtered water is good, I will say that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So April 30, 2010, she is test she testifies under oath about these things. Then on September 2nd, 2010, they still haven't amended their schedules disclosing the existence of the book, the publishing deal, oh my God. TG Fabulicious LLC, or the ownership of this other sixteen oh one Maple Avenue Associates LLC. Like they still they still haven't disclosed that, but I'm skipping ahead. All right. June 30th, 2010, claims against the Judiciaries are made by their creditors. Bankruptcy trustee, the trustee alleges the couple were hiding assets and income, including the $280,000 advance uh, Teresa received for her skinny Italian cookbook and her monthly salary of over $7,000 from Real Housewives of New Jersey. And this is from one of the documents, and I just wanted to like read part of it because it does mention that. So like they actually put this in the pleading. It says the defendant, Teresa Giudice, was also involved in a reality television program known as Housewives of New Jersey. They didn't get it right. It's the real Housewives of New Jersey. How dare they? <laughs> yeah. Under a contract of employment to appear on that show. This defendant also received income from appearances and from the writing of a book, which was written prior to the filing of the petition. That's the other thing. Like she had to go through and do all the recipes and like... This was should have been forefront in her mind. And then it says, upon information belief, Teresa and Joe concealed documents, records, and papers from which the defendant's financial condition or business transactions could be ascertained. The acts complained of include, but are not limited to, failure to disclose an interest in TG Fabulicious LLC, interest in pizza parlor, which I didn't know they had a pizza parlor, interest in laundromat, interest in a published book written, which is the skinny Italian, and information as to actual income received by the defendants. So, like, they're not, the the trustee's not happy about any of this. Yeah, I think this is where it, it parallels with Girardi again, because here the trustee is suing Teresa and Joe for not being completely forthcoming with all of their income and assets and whatnot. And in, and I mentioned this earlier already, but In the law firm bankruptcy, the trustee there has sued Erica, claiming that she received, like you said, payments from a California law settlement and didn't disclose that to the trustee. I I assume she had to disclose that at one point. I haven't seen that in the, like from the docket. Maybe they had some discovery going on and she didn't, she didn't disclose it. Yeah. But it was yearly payments of not that much money. I think it was like $20,000 or something. Not a ton, but I think just the fact that she lied about it, like raised a red flag in the trustee's mind. And that's why she filed the lawsuit. That's not the only thing that they're alleging. They're alleging that she, you know, made potentially fraudulent tax returns, like declared business expenses that weren't necessarily paid by her. So there are parallels here. And it's There are parallels, especially with the tax returns, because despite the fact that they supposedly, Teresa and Joe supposedly gave the trustee their tax returns from 2006, 2007, and 2008, they never filed federal tax returns. Like, those weren't (laughs) actually filed. So literally, like, like, 
from the very beginning of that this bankruptcy has been filed, there have been people asserting themselves saying, okay, they forged documents to obtain mortgages. They, you know, are not disclosing all of this stuff. They failed to do this. And then they're asking Teresa and Joe, the trustee, to give them more information and they're still not getting it right. It's really bad. This is also you, like, an important thing to remember. Like July 21st, 2010, that's when the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act was enacted. So mortgage fraud and problems with banks and mortgages is on the forefront of everyone's mind during this time. So it's really going to be a high priority for federal prosecutors to go after people that are getting mortgages when they shouldn't. March 24th, 2011, Teresa and Joe's bankruptcy attorney receives a fax from the U.S. Attorney's Office and basically saying that you should inform your clients that they are under investigation for fraud, like for federal fraud charges. The reason why I know about this is because Teresa filed a lawsuit against her bankruptcy attorney saying that he didn't properly advise her of certain things like, you know, like what, like, mm-hmm. like they basically like didn't tell her, didn't properly like do his due diligence that he should have, like she's saying like that the bankruptcy attorney should have known that because she talked about this cookbook on the show, that it should have been added to the pleadings. But it's also like, well, you're the one that signed the contract. Maybe yeah. send your attorney a copy of the contract. So they also renew their vows, Teresa and Joe, which is like the kiss of death in the Bravo universe, usually, in September of 2011. And then that's when they abandoned their bankruptcy filing as well. And then Joe also apparently pled his Fifth Amendment rights when they were questioning Judice, Joe Judice, about hiding assets. But he does testify some. Like, he does he does give testimony in his 2004 examination. Okay, we hate doing this to you guys, but there's so much that we have to do the dreaded Bravo to be continued. But we have more details about so much stuff that's going on. We're going to get into the indictment. We're going to get into more family background about what's going on. We're going to answer a ton of the viewer or I guess listener questions that we got. And then we're going to go into some of the details from Teresa's book that she wrote while she was in jail. And it's, it's going to be good. So yeah, I can't wait. I'm, I'm learning a ton. So stay tuned. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Here is part two of the three part series that we just have mashed up for re-release. All right. Welcome back to the Bravo docket. So today, what are we talking about? We are doing part two of our Teresa and Joe Judice episodes where we're going into and explaining all of the federal charges. In our first episode, we went in and explained the background. We talked about when they first got married. We talked about the birth of the children. I downloaded Teresa's book. I paid for it. You guys are welcome. I did it so that you don't have to. (laughs) We (laughs) talked about her getting cast on The Real Housewives of New Jersey and that process and then went into the bankruptcy. And Ceci, do you want to go in and give us some of the mistakes that were made in the bankruptcy so far? Just a little recap of that. Yeah, I guess to recap, because it led to the federal criminal charges. 
So they made, I believe, a total of three amendments to their financial disclosures, and that's where they were supposed to put their ownership interests, creditors that they owed money to, you know, like how much cash they had on hand, what employers they worked for, any extra money that they had, all of their assets. And for whatever reason, every time they filed it, they left something off. And the trustee kept flagging it for them and being like, this is wrong. Can you amend it again? And they kept amending it, and every time they left something off. And even after the last amendment, they still left off that Teresa had a book deal, which, as we pointed out the last time, was probably the thing that was should have been most top of mind to Teresa because she had just signed it before they filed for bankruptcy. And for whatever reason, she left it off. And so that, I think pissed off the trustee and they were like and she was like I'm I don't know if the trustee's a male or female I don't know why I'm assuming she's a female but <laughs> the trustee was like you know we're not I'm not okay with discharging some of the amounts that are owed to creditors because you're you're lying you're intentionally lying you're knowingly lying about your assets to me so screw you you're being fraudulent yes and then because of in our first episode we talked about the lawsuit with Joe's former business partner, who's also, his name was Joe, but it's Joe Mastropole, and how it was proven in civil court that Joe Giudice had forged signatures and like forged the discharge of a mortgage in deed records and that they owed money for that and then filed for bankruptcy immediately so that Joe Mastropole couldn't collect on that. That, all of those like he filed an adversary petition in the bankruptcy as well. So the trustee had to be on high alert from the very beginning with this court document saying this had been forged and they owe money for this. So that was going to alert the trustee right away. It would make, I mean, I, if I got a case like that, I'd be like, okay, so definitely going to double check everything and make sure they actually signed it. And then it, you know, it ended up turning out that they didn't actually file tax returns for years. Mm-hmm. And those right. were forged. Like, right, right. Yeah. So Teresa and Joe submitted like tax returns, I think from 2006 to 2008. So three tax returns, three years of tax returns being like, oh, yeah, this is what we filed each year. And then the trustee was like, you never even filed these. What the that, heck? I mean, that's so bad. That's the so bad. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to point out one thing. So Adriana is born and then a month later is when the Judiciaries file for bankruptcy. So I would say we've seen Teresa on TV for years now. In addition to Teresa's natural sort of lack of interest in paperwork, <laughs> I would say having given birth to a baby one month before you file for bankruptcy would also, I think, be reasonable if they had left some if she had left some things off, right? I think even the trustee would have been like, okay, I get it. Whatever. I mean, I've, I know I have friends and it's like giving birth is like getting hit by a car. Like you do not feel good. And then you have an infant to take care of and you're tired and everything else. But the fact that it just kept happening over and over again, I mean, they were given so many chances to get that stuff right. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't. Right. 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 So many chances. And not only did they not get it right, then they like made up stuff. They were like, yeah. We're going to omit some things and we're going to lie to you. So just very messy, bad all around. Right. Okay. So we're at September 2nd, 2010. 
the trustee files an adversary petition. And this doc is that document is pretty much the roadmap for the federal indictments. They go through some other things and like where they're amending stuff. Um, but then by March 24th, 2011, not that long after the adversary petitions filed by the trustee, their bankruptcy attorney receives what had to be a terrifying fax from the U.S. Attorney's Office, which says that upon information and belief that the you know, pursuant to our telephone conversations yesterday and today, I'm writing to advise you that Teresa and Giuseppe Giudice are targets of a federal grand jury investigation concerning allegations of mortgage fraud and bankruptcy fraud. And then this it's being conducted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of New Jersey, the IRS, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Office of the Inspector General. So <laughs> I, it's like the U.S. Attorney's Office calls the bankruptcy attorney and is like, and which is, by the way, is basically saying like, look, we are investigating your clients, then sends paperwork the next day to follow up and say, we are investigating your clients for fraud. So it's like, at that point, you better get your stuff right. Like, mm-hmm. that's got to be the most terrifying thing to get that you have all these agencies, federal agencies investigating you for federal fraud. It's bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Can I step back a second to the objection yeah. that the trustee filed just to explain like what it is? Teresa and Joe owed creditors a lot of money in the bankruptcy. And in a bankruptcy, you can have some of the liabilities discharged, and that's ordered by the judge based on certain factors and whatnot. And so the trustee filed this objection to discharge, saying, because there is fraud here, because they lied to me, because they made false statements under oath in their accounts and in their disclosures, I don't think that some of these liabilities should be discharged. And so that's the 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 petition that she filed, essentially. That's what it was. So basically calling it out before the judge to be like, they shouldn't be discharged from paying back creditors because they've done X, Y, and Z, like Angela talked about at the beginning of this episode. And so to kind of put this in context with the Girardi cases, which are in bankruptcy right now, this just further illustrates the the fact that Erica is going to have to be completely honest about everything she owns and everything she has, all of her debts, all of her sources of income, or else you can get federal charges for bankruptcy fraud, which are bad, mm-hmm. right? Like she's going to have to do all the same stuff and be honest about it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, lucky for Tom, he doesn't have to do it. And like we talked about last time, the trustee just did it for him because he's incompetent. Incompetent. Yeah. But anyway, back to the facts. I would be so scared if that landed on my doorstep. So this, the, and it's called the tar- a target letter. So this going back to the letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so it says, by way of this letter, I, that's the U.S. Attorney, I seek to afford Teresa and Giuseppe Giudice the opportunity to contact this office to discuss these allegations before criminal charges are initiated against them. Please let me know if you have any questions you'd like to discuss this matter further. Let me just tell you, if you get a letter like this from a U.S. attorney, the best thing you can do is go be honest immediately. Like, get it, get your own attorney, tell your attorney everything that happened, and then have your attorney help you work out a deal. If you have lied and committed federal crimes, the best thing you can do is cop to it immediately because if the U.S. attorney is already contacting you about it, they already know what you did. And 
<laughs> they're going to prove it. So, like... Yeah, so I guess you can, like, plead out before they file anything, or how would that work, like, in the so court? You would, like, you would go, I mean... You could, I mean, possibly they could have gone and said, we made a terrible mistake. We feel terrible. Like, we're not, like, we want to pay all the restitution. Tell us how we can make this right now and possibly have avoided, they could have maybe gotten civil fine, like, possibly have avoided criminal charges and done all of that if they had, I mean, if they had gone and said, yes, we did these things. Also, here's like three other things that we did that we shouldn't have done here's like how we're going to pay it back and we're never going to do anything like this again. And I've are like, and maybe if they'd even gone and like paid some of the stuff back or, you know what I mean? On their own voluntarily to show, Hey, we're not yeah. going to, we have seen the error of our ways and we are terrified and we don't want to make these mistakes ever again. That is not what they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. but if, if the, if the feds are contacting you about something and giving you the chance, I mean, they, they already know what you, they already know what you did. Like mm-hmm. they're so they're clearly willing to tip you off on the fact that they're watching you. So they already know what you did. So mm-hmm. like it's you almost always better to cooperate and say you're sorry immediately. But that's not what they do. Um, in September, Teresa and Joe renew their vows, <laughs> the dreaded vow renewal, and then they abandon their bankruptcy filing. And he pleads his Fifth Amendment rights. And Ceci, do you want to give like just like a little, most people know, but like a, just a little explanation of what Fifth Amendment rights are in the United States? Yeah, I guess you have the right to not incriminate yourself in a proceeding. Yeah. I mean, that's literally almost exactly what the Constitution says. You have the right to not incriminate yourself in a proceeding where you could suffer the deprivation of life, liberty, or property. And we have that right in the United States based off of some British courts that did not give you that right, where you, they pretty much just forced you to testify about yourself. So he does eventually plead the fifth, but by then it's pretty much too late. One, like we said, the feds already knew what he was doing. And two, he had already given depositions in the bankruptcy case, admitting to not uh, disclosing assets and admit, like he had already incriminated himself really bad at that point. Mm-hmm. So didn't they not, both? Teresa, uh, from what I understand, Teresa didn't when she I mean she did incriminate herself about not disclosing the book deal, but I still yes, that wasn't I still feel like Teresa just didn't understand that she had to like mm-hmm. tell the bankruptcy court everything. Like I I believe I believe that she was not super cognizant of like how bad this was going to be for her. And then she wasn't, it's like she was hiding it. She was like, you know, running around doing press appearances for her book. And it was her whole storyline that season. So she wasn't hiding it. So it's just like, it's almost, it's, it's like, it's, it's, I guess it's just difficult to believe that she thought that she could intentionally not put that information down and then be on a very popular television show with a book deal as like one of our main storylines. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how someone could not put it down unless they didn't know. So yeah, I agree with you. Like maybe she thought because it was just a deal and not like, 
I don't know, she hadn't gotten the check yet. Or I don't know, maybe there was some like weird disconnect in her head. I could see that actually, because the contract is dated before the bankruptcy filing, like the week before the bankruptcy filing, but she doesn't sign it until like a month after the bankruptcy filing. Yeah, so so maybe she thought like everything before is what counted and everything she got like after bankruptcy. Being like, well, I don't have the money yet, so it doesn't count. Like, I can see her thinking that perhaps. because she definitely wasn't trying to hide it. However, at a certain point, she should have updated that without the yeah. trustee having to. <laughs> <laughs> After being like told three or two times by the trustee to update it, she probably should have gotten the hint. Yeah. Going back to the Fifth Amendment right, I always thought it was interesting that you can, you know, plead your Fifth Amendment. You just say like, you know, I don't want to I plead my fifth or whatever. Doesn't that kind of signal to people that you are you you were involved in something criminal do you know what i mean um i answering i have to answer this as an attorney if i because i'm an attorney and because i have done i've prosecuted crimes and defended crimes if somebody decides not to testify on their own behalf like in a trial i just think they're smart and they're listening to their attorney mm-hmm. when someone chooses to not incriminate themselves like in a congressional hearing or um, it, I feel like it does, it does kind of signal that obviously you feel like you could say something that could get yourself in trouble. I don't know. I, I have a hard time. I'm trying to disassociate right now, but usually when people do that, I'm like, you're being smart and you're listening to your attorney. So I don't, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. disassociate from that right now. Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to, but I can't. I'm like, no, you're doing the right thing. You're listening to your attorney. Because even if you didn't do anything wrong, most people... It could be used against you. It could be used against you. Like, you could say something that could be used against you. So it's almost always smarter to just shut the hell up in a lot of situations, not just ones where you're accused (laughs) of crimes. (laughs) Yeah, like when you get arrested and your contacts are dry, just shut up. Yeah, just just (laughs) zip it. But it's so hard for people because even I, I mean, think about of all like the true crime stuff that you've watched or true crime podcasts you listen to where the wrong person is convicted and they get called in for questioning and they are like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. But if I don't talk to the police, then they're going to think I did something wrong. So I'm going to talk to them. And then they end up like saying something that's incriminating, even though they're innocent. Like, you know, like it Mm -hmm. helps the police build a case against them, even though they're actually innocent or, and are, you know, proved innocent later. So it's always right. like, it's, it's just, I think people are showing self-restraint and then an awareness of how these things can work when they don't say anything. And I respect that so much that I can't, I'm like, eh, you're being smart. Yeah. 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 I guess like if Joe hadn't pled the fifth, he would have just given them another piece of evidence to use he it's, shouldn't yeah. i mean <laughs> the baker i yeah we're gonna talk about the legal malpractice suit i think in part three that Teresa files against the bankruptcy attorney but like it is amazing to me that the bankruptcy attorney didn't get like sort of keyed in that like this is isn't making sense like these things are adding up or they're not giving me all the information to the point to where he's like had, you know didn't advise them be like this is bad. You need to stop talking and withdraw this or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that later. But also I'm sure I'm a hundred percent positive 
well, I guess I'm 99% positive that when Joe Giudice responded to his bankruptcy attorney's request for his tax returns that Joe didn't say, well, here, I didn't file these and they're fake. Right. But here you go. You know, it's like, yeah, he was trying to pull a fast one. I mean, he got and he had like gotten away with it, apparently, like before. I mean, he wasn't he didn't get criminal charges for when he filed the fraudulent discharge of the mortgage that he got sued for. So I guess maybe he just thought he could get away with it. I'm telling you the balls on that guy. I mean, it's like, like I, I, when I was signing like my mortgage paperwork, I was like terrified because I'm like, well, what if there's something wrong on here? Cause I know I'm going to be on the hook and I'm like exhausted from the entire process. And right. You know, but so yeah. I was, I was terrified. Like, like what if, cause it's like, you know, I, I know that if there's something in there that's not correct, even if it's the bank that put the wrong information in there, I'm still on the hook for it because I'm the one yeah. signing it saying, yes, this is correct. So I just I get like freaked out when like I had to change my tax withholdings because now mm. I'm in another state. I get freaked out even doing that. And that's not even that big of a deal. I know. Like, <laughs> I'm like, am I one? Am I zero? Am I two? I have a dog. I don't know. And like. We're literally attorneys who are good at paperwork, and we're afraid. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to come after me. So, yeah, the fact that he did that is, God. Yeah. Entertaining for us, but so (laughs) dumb. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So September 2011, they abandoned their bankruptcy filings, which means like they're just, they're not asking for, like, a discharge of their debts anymore. Then... 2012, that's when Joe calls Teresa the C word, and I don't mean charming, and says, here comes my B wife. That's also the year that Teresa is on Celebrity Apprentice 5 and when she meets Donald Trump. So then we get into 2013. I'm going to say what the charges are, and then Ceci's going to explain like what they mean. So on July 29, 2013, Teresa and Joe are charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud, wire fraud, and bank fraud, and making false statements on loan applications, and bankruptcy fraud in a 39-count indictment. The indictment also charged Joe with failure to file tax returns from 2004 to 2008. So, Ceci, what is mail fraud? Yeah. Okay. So they were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud. And we've talked about conspiracy before in the Jen Shaw context. But the essential elements of conspiracy to commit mail fraud or wire fraud is an agreement by two or more persons to commit mail fraud or wire fraud, an overt act committed by one of the conspirators in furtherance of the conspiracy. So that's the conspiracy part. And then I was like, okay, but what is mail fraud? And mail fraud, there are two elements having devised or intending to devise a scheme to defraud, use of the mail for the purpose of executing or attempting to execute the scheme. So another way to put it, it's a scheme to defraud and then mailing a letter (laughs) (laughs) or mailing anything using the U.S. Postal Service. I had no idea that's what mail fraud was, that you literally (laughs) just have to mail something and suddenly it's mail fraud. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. But You're, you're using federal resources in a federal agency to perpetuate whatever fraudulent scheme you're doing. And and it can literally just be, oh, I'm sending in my completed loan application through the mail or whatever that's And fraudulent. that's exactly what happened here. Like, they mm-hmm. sent some of their 
Exactly. Some materials for their loan applications via the mail, and that is mail fraud. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And so the conspiracy part, and this is really what I think gets Teresa, even though she maybe had some plausible deniability, it's just that two people agreed to do something and then one person commits an overt act. So even though I think, as we'll talk about later with some of the facts, Joe was the one committing more of the overt acts, it's still a conspiracy because the federal government is claiming that Teresa and Joe agreed that this is what we're going to do. So even though Teresa didn't do all of the specific overt acts, didn't sign everything or whatever, um, it's she's still in the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I explain what some of the scheme is that they yes. put in the indictment? Okay. Yes. So they say that from 2001, and we explained this kind of when, earlier, but from 2001 to 2008, they conspired to defraud lenders and obtain money from them under false pretenses. It was primarily mortgage loan applications with false information indicating they were employed and making substantial salaries when they weren't. So, for example, in one of the loan applications, they said that Teresa was an executive assistant by Modern Era Investment Corp and was making a salary of $3,750 a month and was with them for four years when she wasn't. So they submitted fake W-2 forms and pay stubs from Modern Era Investment Corp, which as an aside, when I first wrote read Modern Era, I wrote Moderna. Moderna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> modern Era, like put together as Moderna. And I was like, oh, weird. So wait, is that a real company at all? I mean, not Moderna. I mean, Modern Era. Is that or did they I make it know. up totally? I don't know if they totally made it up or if they like maybe had a friend that like sent a pay stub in or something. Do you want to look? Oh, yeah, I guess I should. I should have looked, but I was so stuck on Moderna. <laughs> Wait, you think that's what Moderna means? Like, do you think Modern that's how they got the name? Yeah. Actually, yeah. We huh. had trivia last night, and I just learned that, you know, like the Cisco phones, like the Cisco company, yeah. that that's an abbreviation of San Francisco because that's where the company was formed. I had no I just, idea. I got chills for some reason. Full <laughs> 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 chills. Like they just, it was like, like it had a much longer name and then they're like, well, why don't we just call it like, it was like San Francisco, something, blah, blah, blah. They're like, let's just call it Cisco. I had no idea. That's so cool. I didn't know that either. So it's modern era. Era investment corp. Uh, There's a modern era investment Inc. in Sugarland, Texas, but everything else that's coming up is uh, Teresa and Joe articles. (laughs) (laughs) so who knows maybe they made it up or maybe it was real regardless she wasn't working for them and somehow they had fake w-2 forms fake pay stubs and she herself got a loan for based on that application for one hundred and twenty one thousand dollar one hundred and twenty one thousand five hundred dollars wow and she mailed that application materials and that's the mail fraud another one she got they listed her as an employee of Joe's Stucco Company for the past seven years, and they said that she made a monthly salary of $14,750, and based on that application, she got a mortgage loan of $20,200. Here are some crazier ones. They falsified W-2s and pay stubs again to get a $800,000 construction loan. Wow. They did the same thing to another bank and got a $1.7 million construction loan. And so that's why they were being charged with bank fraud, because they 
knowingly executed or attempted to execute a scheme or artifice to defraud a financial institution. And so they defrauded multiple financial institutions. They list one, two, three, four, five. So it's for amounts of like $800,000, $250,000, $170,000, $1.7 and another $1.7 I don't realize how much they were That's getting so in these money. loans. Yeah. That's a lot, a lot of money. So is a bank like, remember Wachovia? Yeah. Bank? Yeah. So they like defrauded them. I guess there was a Park Avenue bank. Yeah. That's So they did it over and over again and got away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then despite getting all of those loans, they still had to file for bankruptcy. And he still filed the fraudulent release of the mortgage and didn't pay his buddy that he was like in business with, the master pole yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Well, I guess like all their money went to tacky furniture, as we saw on the show, like clearly that wasn't the, going where it should have been. That's the height of the like Tuscan. It's like everybody's house in that time period and like slightly before it's like. They all had like the Tuscan kitchens and it it's so like I am following these TikTok accounts on home decor and there's like this one girl. She's like, I live in like early 2000s Tuscan hell and she's <laughs> showing her parents. I was like, every time I come home and it's like that awful, it's like the leather and then like the, why did everyone mm-hmm. have like fruit paintings and the that yellow tan I'm yeah. older than you, but you re- you remember. You, oh, no, you know yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and it was also this, like, they wanted it to look very Renaissance at the same time. So it was, like, yeah. Tuscan with, like, really ornate Renaissance-looking Victorian. Not Victorian. Renaissance is before Victorian. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know why I feel like Teresa is one of the type of people that would have. Do you remember those foot chairs that look like it was, like, a high heel chair? Yes, yeah, I feel they like also she have those had in one. strip clubs. They are very <laughs> people are very like <laughs> strip clubs are really into the like high heel chair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I guess that's where the money went. But yeah, I remember her decorating that house, and it's like also that's crazy. There is <laughs> a website called um, McMansion Hell. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. And they yeah. have Teresa's house on there, and they like it is. I highly recommend that if you just need to be entertained or go down a rabbit hole. I actually have fond memories of Teresa's house because I enjoyed the family interactions in yeah. Nano and like, you know, but it's it's definitely the the Tuscan Renaissance. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Something I want to mention, because like we talked about this when we talked about the Erica stuff and how attorneys don't make that much money, not enough money to be flying out on two different private planes, like spending $30,000 a month on glam and everything else. How did she think that her husband was funding this stuff? You know, if she's claiming innocence or ignorance, how did she, where did she think they were getting the money from? I mean, I don't know. I, I, going back because like we talked about in part one, this is like right when they were getting all these loans during the time right before the financial crisis hit. So it was very, mm-hmm. so many people were living above and beyond their means. And like when that financial crisis hit in 
2008 and like the housing market just totally went to hell. I feel like there was a lot, like it was just, there are a lot of people living well beyond their means. And especially because the banks were literally just giving out Mm -hmm. loans so easily to people that couldn't afford them. Again, watch the big short. It explains all of this in a super compelling, entertaining way. But I, I just think I don't, I don't think she was asking questions and I don't think she wanted to know. And I'd also, I, th- I think she assumed there's probably some shenanigans, but that it wasn't, I mean, if you had asked Teresa Judice what wire fraud was in. <laughs> or mail fraud. <laughs> or mail fraud was in two, <laughs> 2006, she's going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, this is, I'm already right. bored, <laughs> you know? Right. So. I guess going back to the indictment as well. It is interesting how long it is when you compare mm-hmm. it to like Jen Shaw's, even though Jen Shaw is, a, is at the top of like a horrific scheme, she's not being charged with as many things as Teresa and Joe were charged with. I think the indictment was like 33 pages, whereas Jen Shaw's was like two pages and I think two charges. So it's just wild yeah. how much they did. Yeah. It's also because they each loan was a separate count. There was just so many specific instances of fraud that their indictment that they it's like they filed for bankruptcy, filed the fraudulent documents in the bankruptcy, then committed additional fraud in the bankruptcy. And so there was just so much to put in. I mean, there's just so much yeah. there. And because there were like and they alleged different conspiracies for like like Jen's, it was like one ongoing conspiracy. So mm-hmm. it, that was like part of like the whole like transaction of events. It was like one big conspiracy to do all of these things. Whereas because there are so many different, they did this. So I think like, you know, every mortgage application, like there is a conspiracy to do that. There's the conspiracy to, you know, be fraudulent in the bankruptcy filings. There's, there's so many different specific instances mm-hmm. that they served up on a platter for the federal government that it had to be longer. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they just kept doing it. Loan application fraud, bankruptcy fraud. I didn't even realize bankruptcy fraud was a thing, but this is a pretty clear example of it, in my opinion. That's the thing Erica Jane is going to have to be incredibly careful of because she's got people just waiting for her to make a mistake. To get her on Does it matter though that something. she didn't file for bankruptcy? No, I mean you still even if even if it's an adversary bankruptcy petition, it's like you still can't lie to Yeah. True. <laughs> True. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Legal team. Have you guys been on Quince's website recently? I shopped on there like three years ago for the first time and bought myself a bunch of cashmere sweaters. I lived in the black cashmere sweater, lived in it. And I hadn't shopped on there for a while because my cashmere sweaters lasted for a really long time. But I decided to go back on there and, oh my gosh, have they completely expanded everything that they offer. The workwear, they have washable silk. And I mean, it's so affordable. I also shared with you all that I'm recently engaged and I'm in the middle of wedding planning. So anytime I'm shopping, I'm thinking about wedding, 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 wedding. And they have everything I need for the wedding. I just booked my honeymoon. We're going to go to Southeast Asia. It's going to be hot there. And I've been looking for good linen pieces. Guess what? Quince has good linen pieces and they started only $30. Then I'm like, okay, we need to get our wedding bands. You know who has fine jewelry now? 14 karat gold, Quince. So I send the link to Avery and I'm like, you have to get your wedding band from here. It's affordable and it looks just like any other wedding band. I mean, it looks great. Another thing I'm doing, again, I have wedding on the brain. I want to look my best. So I'm like, okay, I really want cute little matching sets to go work out in. It's the only way I can get motivated. I have to like wear a cute little matching set. I've gotten really into Pilates. And guess what? Quince has the matching sets. They look identical to matching sets I've already purchased from another sports brand. They have the same thing. And at a fraction of the cost, I was able to get two tops and one pair of pants for the same price that I could only get one set at this other sportswear place. I mean, come on. Quince is just killing it. If you've shopped there before, it's time to go back on again. They have just completely expanded the categories of goods that they have to offer. They're not just all about cashmere sweaters anymore. They have got a ton of stuff, and I highly recommend you go check it out. If you're ready to go try out Quince, go to quince.com slash docket to get free shipping and 365-day returns. That is q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash docket to get free shipping and 365-day returns. That is an amazing guarantee on their goods. So go check it out. I highly recommend it, guys. The federal it's still court. bankruptcy fraud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like if you're like if especially and I think they probably even in normal circumstances when it's an involuntary bankruptcy petition that one of your creditors filed against you, you I think in those instances and our bankruptcy friends out there can correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably would be seemingly more if you didn't voluntarily go into bankruptcy and say, yes, I have all this stuff. I made mistakes. I need like the bankruptcy court to sort this out. If someone else, if your creditor's pushing you in there because you're not paying them, then it would seem like it, the likelihood that you would be fraudulent would be greater because um, mm-hmm. you're, you don't even want to be there. It wasn't your choice. Not that anybody right. wants to be in bankruptcy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. Sorry, I keep going on tangents, but I like the fact tangents. that, like, <laughs> they filed for bankruptcy here. It mm-hmm. wasn't involuntary. They decided to do it. They needed this process to help them out, and they still lied. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's just 
makes it that much worse to me. Like, based on what you just said, it's yeah. like they were seeking this help that our country affords us via bankruptcy, and they still couldn't be honest. I mean, like, okay, when I had my own firm, and I fortunately had a lot of clients where I had, like, good defense work. You know, I, I represented commercial property owners, railroads, whatever. But I very much enjoyed taking the occasional plaintiff's case. And those were always some of my favorite cases. But I turned down almost 99% of cases. And some of it was because, okay, I don't think you have a viable claim. But some of it was because you're li- I caught you lying to me already. And it's like, yeah. when you are taking on a plaintiff's case, you're investing so much time and money and energy into it. And then you're not going to get paid unless you win. And it's like, I would do so much research on the clients that came into me. Cause I'm like, I have to make sure they're not lying to me. Now the, he was the bankruptcy attorney here is getting paid by the hour. Um, so, but I would still, it's like that habit still sticks. I don't know. I feel like that habit would still stick with you. It's like, I need to make sure that they're not just like protecting people from themselves. So it's like if people come in and they're handing you these documents, like, and I'm jumping ahead, but I said, I'm just going to mention it now. One of the things on the legal malpractice complaint that um, is pointed out is that and that's the, the one Teresa filed against her bankruptcy attorney. Against yeah. her bankruptcy attorney um, is that he didn't even uh, put down that they had any vehicles and they live in New Jersey where you can't get around without a car. It seems like a big omission. Now, again, I'm not judging this bankruptcy attorney, but I am saying that seems like someone's coming to you and saying, we're going to file documents in federal court asking for her, like help from our creditors. And we have to be honest about it. And they don't admit to having any, like they don't list any cars as assets and you live in New Jersey. That's a little odd. Like mm-hmm. you can't get anywhere in Jersey without a car. <laughs> yeah. Unless they like had it on loan. But you still, it's still like if, even if you're leasing a car, that's still a debt that you, like you still have to list that. Oh yeah. That would be a debt. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Cause they listed it as a debt. It would, yeah. It wasn't an yeah. asset. Yeah. But and like, and even if you don't owe money on the car and you own it outright, that's still that's like, that's be. a possession. Yeah. That's yeah. a possession. So it, yeah. I mean, they probably even drove to the appointment to see him. <laughs> yeah. He still didn't know that they had a car. <laughs> Okay, so just going back to Teresa a little bit. So Teresa, this is from her book. So we're at the point to where they've been indicted. That was shown on the Real Housewives of New Jersey. I, wasn't that in like the worst season? No. Yeah. I think this, yeah. No, the twins. it was because you yeah. told me to start watching season five. I watched okay, season I, one and two. I, and then I jumped over to this. season five. <laughs> and it is the worst thing I've ever seen. And I cannot watch it. I'm not. I'm not doing it. It's I'm so sorry. bad. And I I actually like forgot that it, like I blocked that out of my head when I told you, yeah, the indictment's like on season five. So you have to go watch that. And it is like the worst season. The, it's the, terrible. The twins are insufferable. Insufferable. And I was then like, I cannot like, do this. I cannot. <laughs> I'm not watching it. Is that also it. the season where there's that fight in the basement where they're all dressed up like firemen or police mm-hmm. officers or whatever? Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's hair pulling. And then like that, the Marchese people are, oh God, they're the worst. Terrible. I they're probably like my some of my least favorite casting decision be on 
when she like calls Teresa from like outside her church and she's like, I'm just so worried about you. I'm like, whatever Teresa says to her, she deserves it. <laughs> I'm not know. gone that far and I never will see that scene. So <laughs> not it's, watching it. You've brought all of these horrible memories back up to my brain. So now <laughs> they're there and I can't like get that time back in my life. So sorry about that. But yeah, but that is when it comes out and it, I, it actually was interesting to watch, like how they handled it and like what happened after that. So yeah. Yeah. That was entertaining. Yeah. I mean, Teresa's and has always been very prideful. I mean, that's how like the whole table flipping incident happened. She's like, don't tell me, you know, not to talk yeah. or that I, I'm stupid. Don't tell me. And so having to have that happen to you while you're on TV and everyone knows and everyone's talking about you must have just been incredibly difficult. Also, she talks about in her book, um, Turning the Tables, that's the name of the book that I downloaded, <laughs> that uh, her deals with Costco and BJ's. What's BJ's? Is that like, a, that's obviously an East Coast something or yeah, other. Yeah, it's like a restaurant. It's a restaurant. Um, you, you, like when you want to buy restaurant quality stuff, you go to BJ's. Oh, okay. It's kind of like okay. a, I think it's, I never actually went into one because I only saw it when I was in law school and I wasn't in the market for anything like that. You were yeah, in the market for like, food. <laughs> no, no, I was in the market for food, but I think it's like bulk stuff oh, and bulk like food, yeah. nice glo- glassware and stuff mm. like that. But it's funny because on the West Coast, there's like a, or maybe in other places too, there's the BJ's restaurant. Like the, I don't know if, have you been there? No. Maybe that's just a California thing then, which is like yeah. pizza and beer and like wings, but it's like kind of nicer. I don't so, know. I don't know. Maybe people can like DM us and let us know what your BJ's is, <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs> Wait, I just, what did you just ask for? Like, don't, don't, we don't want that, <gasps> no, listeners. No, we don't. Never mind, never mind. I guess, like, yeah, like, is your BJ's the wholesale restaurant place or is it the BJ's restaurant? Got I don't want to know about any other BJ's. Yeah, no, we don't. Um, Oops. <laughs> anyway, Teresa says in her book that when after the indictment that her deals with Costco and BJ's to sell her dessert line and specialty food line were put on pause because they wanted to see what would happen. And that Home Shopping Network was supposed to sell her hair care line, but told her it wasn't a good time and that no new liquor stores would carry her Fabellini drink, which again, I tried to find that and have a case of it sent to you, but I can't find it. And I, I'm mm-hmm. not sure what it was. I think like a Bellini type thing. I don't know. But that actually is pretty tragic because I remember liking like like we talked about in part one that the scenes of her cooking with her Italian family and like the big, you know, vats of tomato sauce and the little girls helping was very like endearing and that her, you know, she was she obviously I think we can all agree the New Jersey ladies can all cook like Mm -hmm. they're they i would go eat at their house anytime um i would not bring sprinkle cookies but i would go eat (laughs) at their house um because i think that would have been really good for her she really would have made it would have been i think she would have been actually successful with those things and not necessarily Mm -hmm. with the fabellini drink or whatever but i think the book like the cookbook and the dessert line probably would have done well um, yeah, and she could have used the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then maybe they wouldn't have had to, like, get fraudulent loans anymore. Right, right. So that all goes away. Um, And then, so they continue to film season six while the charges are pending. And then 
in August 2013. That's when they plead not guilty in federal court. Oh, and just a side note, Teresa mentions this in her book, that at one point the trial was set for Valentine's Day. And I will say, in Teresa's book, she is incredibly complimentary towards Joe this whole time. Like, even as the indictment is pending, it was, even though we saw him on TV calling her the C word, and <laughs> she is incredibly, she's effusive yeah. in her praise for Joe and that he's a good dad and that she loved him and he was strong and just act like there is no, there's not even a hint of resentment in her book that, like, when she's talking about like these things happening in this sequence of events, that she is mad at Joe or furious that he didn't tell her mad that he signed her name to things or anything like there's, it's not there at all, which I thought was interesting because not once does she bring that up, which also made Mm -hmm. me wonder, like maybe she did know, like, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I still, I don't think she knew like what the crimes actually were, but I think maybe she was, maybe she was complicit in saying like, yeah, let's, let's file this stuff or whatever. Like, you know? Yeah, maybe. I guess it just seems different from what she says in her pretrial motions, but... Yeah, it, well, okay. So, so November... So August 14, 2013, that's when they plead not guilty in federal court, and it, we see that on TV as well. Then November 18th, the first superseding indictment is returned, and um, says the I'm right, that's like basically like a, an amended complaint in a civil case, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So again, I'm just the superseding indictment adds a couple charges um, and goes into detail, but it also it says they repeatedly concealed assets during the bankruptcy, made false oaths, which is fancy lawyer speak for lying to your face, um, and made false declarations. They intentionally, you know, failed to disclose their ownership of certain income producing properties. Um, and in many instances, these properties, which I thought was interesting. So like they file like false documents in order to get the mortgages and then they get the mortgages, they buy income producing property, and then they failed to declare the income from the property in the bankruptcy. So it's like multiple layers. Yeah. Of bad. Yeah. And then they also charged, uh, Joe with the willful failure to file tax returns um, from 2004, 2008. So January and February, 2014, pretrial motions are filed um, requesting several things. Some of this stuff is very, very similar to what we talked about in our Jin Shaw pretrial motion episode. They, so we're not going to go over the repeat stuff because it's literally the same type of thing, but they also had some really, interesting additional details. Um, So one of the things in the pre-trial motions that they wanted, like obviously Teresa and Joe. But it was just Teresa, right? No, no, they were both. They filed this one together. Yeah, they filed uh, two separate motions, um, one for Teresa and one for Joe, but a lot of it was repetitive um, with, with both defendants asking for the same thing. So one of the things that was in both motions was, wanting the trial to be severed. So Teresa and Joe were asking that they be tried separately. The government doesn't really like to do that in a case like this where they're alleging a conspiracy. So the charges are a conspiracy between these two people 
it's the same time frame, the same sequence of events, the same uh, facts, the same signatures, the same documents, the, the same exhibits. Yeah. It's all yeah. the same thing. And so that is the government considers that a waste of the court's time and a waste of money and resources to have to have two separate trials where you basically be repeating the same things over and over again. But one of the things that Teresa is arguing is that she wants to maintain her right not to testify against her husband, which is the spousal privilege that you have while you're married to testify, like to refuse to testify to crime that you witnessed your husband committing or your wife committing. Anybody can commit crimes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that she wants to, like, if they're in the same trial that she's going to have to testify against him while she's also trying to defend herself. So she's asking for that. And then she's also... Is that because the spousal privilege goes away if you're tried together? Well, if what, if the, if what she's saying, like, so let's say they did Joe's trial first and Mm -hmm. this is what I think they were wanting. So they wanted to do Joe's trial first Teresa would invoke her privilege against personal self-incrimination and then also invoke the spousal privilege so that she wouldn't have to testify against her husband. And then Joe would, and I think it's kind of clear from reading the motions that Joe didn't really have much of a defense. He'd already, yeah, <laughs> he'd already like it, it admitted to a lot of things and incriminated himself. And there just isn't when you these completely fake documents that are being submitted. Like the, Joe didn't have much of a defense. So I, I think what their goal was was to get Teresa completely out of it as much as possible for her to invoke those privileges, Joe to probably plea, and then for Teresa to have a trial, maybe, where yeah. Joe could actually take the stand and defend her because he had already he didn't have to worry about incriminating himself because he would be, you know, they just bring him in as a witness from jail and he got would it, testify. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So if it was all done together, then they couldn't. They can't yeah, do they that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Obviously, Smart. the government did not agree with this plan. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the government's like, first of all, we're not like doubling the expenses by separating trials just so that Teresa can get away with whatever that like we're, they had no interest in doing that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was really Compelling was that Joe had it, had at least said that he intended to testify that Teresa didn't have involvement in several things, and it's listed out. I just need to find this in the document here. So Joe was going to provide exculpatory um, testimony for Teresa, and exculpatory is just like Joe's going to say, hey, she's not guilty. Like, that's pretty much just what that means of these particular things, or the, provide testimony that makes it her less likely to be found guilty. Um, So Joe had a declaration where he said that he would testify that Teresa had no knowledge of any misrepresentation on loan applications, mortgage applications, or lines of credit, that Teresa was not aware that various properties were inquired in her name. So if that's true, that's pretty bad. (laughs) Like he's just signing mortgage, getting mortgages in Teresa's name and she didn't know. Um, that Teresa was not aware that various businesses were owned in her name, which, okay, that could be true. Um, but she definitely knew about like the TG Fabulicious LLC and she knew she was writing a cookbook and 
Right. Like, she knew that. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, that Teresa didn't know that Joe's business partner, Joe Mastropoli, signed Teresa's name on numerous occasions without her knowledge or authorization. That Joe's attorney, Fred, I'm not going to say his last name, signed Teresa's name on numerous occasions without her knowledge or authorization. And that other individuals, including bank representatives, were aware that Teresa had not signed various documents, including loan applications, mortgage applications, lines of credit, <laughs> and so on. According to these court documents and Joe's uh, declarations, which is just like a formal written statement, Joe was intending to take the stand in Teresa's trial and say she didn't, I signed her name as stuff, she didn't know, so on and so forth. And I'm sure that Joe did not want Teresa to go to jail, that he wanted her at home with the kids, that he felt bad. And I am also sure that Joe did frequently sign Teresa's name to things that she didn't know right. about. Don't you think like he did? Likely? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, Sign. he even said that uh, there was a lender that would notarize it, even though he signed for her, which we've talked about, like, the importance of, like, having it notarized. So, yeah, Mary yeah. Cosby episode went all the way up to the Utah Supreme Court. Like, you can't, right. a notary, like, a notary has one job, and that's to witness a signature. And to witness a signature, you actually have to see the person signing, that they're signing. Like, and then that's, that's literally all a notary is doing is saying, like, I am a live witness that will testify under the penalty of perjury that I saw this person because, like, literally, like, the little notary stamps is, like, I hereby certify that I personally witnessed the signature of blah, 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 whoever on this right. date in this location. That's the only, like, the notary is not saying that anything in the document is true. The notary isn't saying that anything in the document is legal or not legal. The notary has one job, and that is to witness a signature. So, right. like, if someone's like, oh, I'll just have this notarized for you later. No, that's not Okay. <laughs> that's not it's not okay and a notary should not do that and i haven't worked with a single notary like that didn't take that very seriously so mm -hmm. i know they're out there well but they remember they also i just remembered this um in the the civil case that master Poli filed joe judice had stolen the notaries uh their court records saying like he had taken the notaries like stamp oh yeah like, i remember that now and some of them are really, like, some of the notary stamps, this is totally um, an ADHD aside, but, like, are really cool. Like, they're actually, like, press in. Like, so they create, like, the actual, mm -hmm. like, embossed paper. I always thought those yeah. were cool. But you most get of them that are, for, like, your own stationery. For all of my written correspondence, which actually yeah. I do send. You know what? I'm going to order myself one because I think you they're should. really cool. Not a notary yeah. stamp. I'm not going to fake be a notary. I'm just going to get, like, a cool embossed signature thing. That's what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, you should get one. I think they're really cool as well. Like the little pressy things. I think the really cool ones are the ones where it's like the, the wax. Oh, yeah. From like old times. Yeah. You like put the wax and then you like stamp it in there. You should get one of those. I'm going to get one of those too. And then people are going to get correspondence from me that's like a text message just because I want to use my waxing and be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, I support stop. it. Sending me these things <laughs> that are not necessary. Maybe I just won't send you my new address. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bitch, I'll find it. <laughs> you can't hide. Yeah. So, okay, that was a notary digression. Yeah. So I guess essentially it's like Joe is saying that she didn't sign anything. Anything. And I, I remember because I wasn't watching this stuff in real time, people were like, is it true that she signed or it didn't matter whether she signed and 
there was like it sounded like there was a specific document that people thought that was like the crux of the case. I don't know if you remember that. I think people I'm trying to remember. I think people seized on like one or two particular but like there's so many documents here. And cuz like if like we talked about like the indictment was so long because there's so many instances and she did sign some of them. Like he yeah. wasn't signing all of her signatures for her. Like so I think yeah, I can't remember exactly. I I have a vague memory of that as well. But there's mm-hmm. so many documents and she did sign right. some of them. And, and it also, but like, doesn't even matter because that wasn't the only thing going on. It wasn't only the loan applications right. that got them into hot water. It was like the tax returns, the bankruptcy, fraud, everything else that we listed out from the indictment. So it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that this, I want to bring this up because Teresa could have, um, just in order to get herself out of trouble, she could have taken the stand and testify. Like I said, I'll testify against Joe. I will waive that spousal privilege. I will testify against him. I'm mad. I didn't do any of this. I had no idea what was going on. And she, there is no indication that she ever even thought that that was something that she would do. And I would say that that's also consistent with her personality and what we saw on the show. Like she was not going to testify against the father of her children. Um, and Joe may not have always been, an ideal husband to her, but she definitely did love him. Like, mm-hmm. I think that was, I mean, is that the feeling you got from watching them? Like, yeah. Yeah. They seemed like so in love to me until I watched that clip where he calls her a C word and <laughs> a bitch. And <laughs> the C word that's does not charming. He also called her the R word, which I thought was the worst thing. The R word. Yeah. Like, mm, what does it rhyme with? Hmm. Why can't I think of an, an insult that starts an R? Ratchet? It's like, <laughs> it used to mean, like, very unintelligent. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It didn't used to mean that. People used to use it for right, that, right, which right. is so inappropriate. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm like, Ratchet? Did he call her Ratchet? <laughs> ratchet. <laughs> you ratchet bitch C-word. <laughs> That was I it. Mean, yeah. I yeah. I would probably laugh so like how he'd have to say it, like his accent, like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Ratchet. Um, okay, now I'm totally like lost here. Wait. All right. So okay, I was talking about the the how Teresa never even appeared to consider it an option to um testify against Joe. And I do think that Especially, like, now that we've seen this and even though they're divorced, they still appear to be friendly and have as much of a good relationship as they can. And they've been through so much together. And it is the father of her children. And, and like, I respect that. Like, I, I as, yeah. like, a human – if I was her attorney, I probably wouldn't feel that way. But, like, as a human being, I respect that she did not want to – testify against her husband and that she didn't even appear to consider that to be an option. Um, right. But it also makes me wonder if she was also like more complicit than <laughs> she's letting on. Yeah, um, maybe. But the government, we don't know. Like, so this brief was filed. The pretrial motions were filed. The government filed a response giving some very uh, well uh 
thought out and then also well uh, researched reasons why it would not be severance would be appropriate. They filed a reply. It was never ruled on because in March 4th, 2014, Teresa and Joe enter a guilty plea. And in her book, Teresa specifically says that their attorney told them they need to accept a plea deal ASAP. So they obviously listened to their attorney on that. So March 4th, 2014, Teresa and Joe enter the guilty plea. That was also very widely publicized. And we watch these sequences of events unfold on TV. In the next episode, we are going to go into uh, exactly what they pled to. We're going to explain the reasons why the court, in some circumstances, will let defendants serve their time, like, like Teresa and Joe did, where the kids had one parent home because that isn't super common, but it does happen in other circumstances, even with non-famous people. And we're going to go into a lot of details that I thought were fascinating about Teresa's time in jail. Also the immigration issues with Joe and his deportation, the divorce, the legal malpractice. This sounds like a lot, but (laughs) we're going to, we're going to wrap it up in the next episode. Oh, we also have, the listener questions. All right. So we got, we posted a thing on our Instagram asking for our listener questions in one of our Insta stories. And we got a lot. And some of y'all posted some shady questions, which were funny. And we'll get to those at the very end of the next episode. But there were, um, we're going to go through some of them that I believe that we have answered in this episode. So one did Trey no, or did Joe screw her over? Katie O'Neill 7. I think you kind of have to come to your own conclusions from what we've talked about in this episode, but I'm going to ask you, Ceci, what is your opinion? It's hard to say. I think she knew part of it. I don't think she knew all of it. I would say maybe she knew once the bankruptcy was filed and stuff with like the fraudulent tax returns and maybe the loans that she herself was named on. So like the ones, like I mentioned, where Mm -hmm. she had false, fake business or employment documents. I think maybe she knew those, but not everything. So I think that she knew that everything wasn't like totally legal, but I do not think she knew everything that was going on. And I don't think she knew the seriousness of what was happening. I think in her head, she's like, well, if we get the loans and we pay them back, why does it matter? Or, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I do sometimes go into Joe's office and move paperwork around or like, I, I think she rationalized a lot of it, but I don't think she had any idea of like the actual scope and seriousness of what they were doing was. Now, I don't think Joe knew that either, but I, Joe definitely knew he was lying about <laughs> Mm-hmm. about all these things. Miriam S. also asked, did Teresa know? Megan asked, do you think Teresa knew he was committing tax fraud or bankruptcy fraud? I mean, like I so like I do the tax returns for John and I. And like, but John still looks at like John looks, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, so I don't know. So I, I think we've answered those the best that we can. Um, was Teresa aware that Joe's committing fraud? Again, same question. I do think she knew he was being fraudulent, but I don't think he knew. She knew like specifically what 
that was. What was the evidence against Teresa? I would say the documents that she signed, because she definitely did sign several documents. Right. She didn't sign all of them. She definitely signed some. Right. And she not only the loan documents, like yeah. also the bankruptcy disclosures. Oh. I think I remember the document that everybody was like talking about because um, I think it was the W-2s where mm. it was like the fake jobs. So she knew she wasn't doing those jobs. Like she knew she right. wasn't getting paid for those jobs. She knew that, I think, mm-hmm. for sure. All right. So we have a lot of other fan questions, but they're almost all over the stuff that we're going to cover in the next episode. So we will cover that then. So thank you for tuning in. And until next time. All right. And here is part three of the re-release of the three-part series on Teresa and Joe. So this is the third part in our three-part series covering Teresa and Joe. This is going to be the final one. And do you want to reorient everyone on what happened in parts one and two? Yeah. So part one, we talked about Teresa and Joe's origin story. We even went as far back to talk about how they met when Teresa was 14. We talked about how they ended up on the show. We talked about some interesting legal issues that they had before they even got on the show. And then we talked about how they filed for bankruptcy. And also I read some excerpts from Teresa's book talking about like when she was approached by the Real Housewives producers Then in part two, we talked about more details about the bankruptcy. We talked about how the mistakes they made in their bankruptcy led to the federal indictment, and we explained the charges there. And then we got all the way up in the timeline to the part where they were actually indicted. We explained how that worked and what the charges were, and then... Now we are going to get to the actual sentencing and the jail time and then also the divorce and the deportation and more listener questions. <laughs> so much. So much. Yeah, before we dive into that, I thought it would be interesting to talk about how cases end up in federal court. Teresa and Joe's case is in federal court, which is a, a big deal. So federal courts can hear criminal, civil, and bankruptcy cases, but not all cases go into federal court. There are three ways that it can end up in federal court. I believe this applies to civil cases. So first is if you violate certain laws and statutes, it becomes automatically federal. I think I mentioned during the um, Tardy for the Party podcast episode that we did how Because it was under the Copyright Act, it automatically went into federal court. So there are certain laws like that. Sometimes it's laws that have to do with constitutional rights. It's called like a federal question, and that means the federal court can hear it and has jurisdiction over it. The second way is if it's over a certain dollar amount, plus the parties are from different states, and that dollar amount is $75,000. So if someone claims that they were injured in the amount of over $75,000, and the, the parties are from different states, it can end up in federal court. The third way is supplemental. And this means that there is a federal claim made and a state claim made. And because the federal claim was made, the state law claim also gets heard in federal court as part of one case. Yeah. And then for criminal stuff, the that it's it works a bit differently. If you commit a crime that violates state law and federal law, both the state and the feds can charge you. So you could possibly, because you have broken the law of both jurisdictions, but federal courts prosecute federal crimes. 
So you're not really going to see a federal court also prosecuting you for a state crime. That's not going to be how that would work. But yeah, that's that's actually like the worst case scenario is if you have charges <laughs> in state and federal court at the same time. Try not to do that. Yeah. So their charges are conspiracy to commit mail fraud, bankruptcy fraud, loan fraud. And then Joe was filing false tax returns all over the place. So this is in federal court in Newark, New Jersey. So on March 4th, 2014, Teresa and Joe enter a guilty plea. And Teresa specifically says in her book that their attorney told them they needed to accept a plea deal as soon as possible. We watched this on the show when they went in for their sentencing. It was very high drama and they were in there. It was like one of the longest sentencing hearings that I've heard of. So wait, can you explain plea deals before you get to the sentence? Okay. So yeah, we've talked like in, in other episodes about plea deals. And I think I've mentioned several times that the feds typically don't bring charges against you unless they are very confident they can prove them. And a plea deal is how most of these cases get worked out. I mean, if you look at the stats for federal, uh, criminal courts, it's, you know, there just are not that many trials and most of them are resolved via pleas. And so what would happen is either your attorney or one of the U.S. attorneys uh, would start approaching each other about potentially um, entering a plea and the U.S. attorney will write up a plea offer. And that works just kind of like a settlement offer in civil court. So you will get a document uh, from the U.S. attorney that's handed over to your attorney. And then your attorney sits down with you and says, okay, this is what the U.S. attorney is offering to recommend at your sentencing to the judge. And it will go through. And when you get that plea deal, like typically, hopefully for you, it is less than what you would get if you you know, tried the case uh, to a jury and then lost on everything. So like sometimes they'll dismiss some of the charges or sometimes they'll say we'll recommend like a downward departure because of, you know, you've been a confidential informant or you've helped us or you, you know, have already paid restitution or whatever it is that you've tried to work out to get your plea deal. And then you have a here. So you work that out with the U.S. attorney and then you have a hearing date to enter the plea. And that's usually also when like your sentencing is sometimes it's two different hearings. But what the scary thing is, is that the judge doesn't have to agree. The judge typically does, but they do not have to agree to what you've agreed to. And you have to admit to the elements of those crimes. So you have to like a lot of times they'll read it out and say, ask you questions and say, do you admit that on this date you committed this overt act in furtherance of this conspiracy or blah, blah, blah. And you have to say yes on the record. And then after that's done, the judge will enter your sentence either at that hearing or at a subsequent hearing. And like we said, the judge does not have to agree to what either the prosecutors are asking for and doesn't have to agree to what you've agreed to in the plea deal. But they typically do. I mean, the judges typically respect the prosecutors and the the agreements that have been made because there's typically good reasons for those. So sometimes the prosecutors ask for more and the judge, you know, doesn't have to. But like, this is actually very relevant because this is what happened at Joe and Teresa's. Yeah. Something about pleas, though, like I was reading up on it and like, I think a lot of people have a hard time. I guess if, if you're maintaining your innocence, it's hard to accept a plea deal because you have to say that you're guilty and that you did what they're accusing you of. 
But the problem is, like, th- there's a huge risk. Like, if, if you ended up going to trial, say you were charged with, like, a bunch of different crimes or, you know, accused of doing a bunch of different things, and you made it all the way to trial, there's the risk that you're going to get hit and found guilty of all those things. So you're kind of, like, negotiating with the trial process and trying to determine what's best for you. And I I know you mentioned that they normally prosecute things knowing or being sure that the crime was actually committed. But there are a lot of people, I think, that maintain their innocence. Or, I, I mean, I've heard of stories, and I'm sure you have too, where someone like did accept a plea deal because they thought it would be the best thing for them, but they were innocent the entire time. And yeah, you know, it, it's, it's like an interesting process. Also, like, it's Going to trial is also a risk for the prosecutors, too. So they like entering into plea deals because they get to say that it was a a successful prosecution. Right. Like they get still get to mark it as a successful prosecution, even though, you know, it didn't go to trial and there wasn't a, a guilty verdict. Yeah. Well, there's so some, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And like trials, even if you are as even if you're a prosecutor and you're really sure that you can convict someone of something and you've spent months working a case up, there is always an element of risk at a trial. I mean, there's always, first of all, jurors (laughs) are always a risk. You don't, you know, you've looked at this case and you think that you are sure that this evidence is going to convict someone or win your civil case, but jurors are, may not agree with you and may not have your same mindset and you just don't know. And then also, I mean, witnesses can if you have a a key witness and you think they're great, you can put them on the stand and then suddenly they melt down on the stand. We've all had it happen at one point or another, if you've been a trial attorney long enough. Um, And so there's just a lot that can go wrong with the trial and trials are, in my opinion, the most fun part of our job, but also the most stressful part of our job. Like it is, it is a lot of work. And it's also when it involves a government party, that's a lot of time and expense that, people's tax dollars are being used for. So there's all these good reasons for pleas mm-hmm. and why they exist. There's It'll be interesting. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. Like, I do you I don't think Jen Shaw is going to accept a plea deal. No, I don't. But I yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see that play out because like, yeah, assuming she gets the book thrown at her and sentencing, it's like, I wonder what they would have offered her or what they are offering her right now in terms of pleas. I don't think they're going to offer her anything that Okay, so like, and to have it just a little Jinshaw digression, if you, or digression, if you look at the other people that have pled guilty in her case, first they have to like, you have to like, it's a, okay, this, <laughs> it almost sounds like the government is like a parent, but like the government wants you to like have acknowledged that it's wrong and like what you did is wrong and that show like real genuine remorse And then also take accountability for your actions. That comes up in sentencing and it comes up in plea deals. Like, have you, did you help the government? Did you turn a government witness? Did you uh, show genuine remorse? Have you demonstrated that your behavior has changed? And when they, a lot of times, like defense attorneys will have sentencing letters written from parents, family members, teachers, anybody in your life, they can say, look, this person just, made a mistake. They just got caught up with the wrong people or whatever. And Jen Shaw's... Well, isn't that what uh, Caroline Manzo wrote yes, for her that's brother? The, yeah. Speaking of Jersey, that's the whole Manzo thing. That's why, like, you know, Caroline Manzo wrote that saying, oh, no, this is a... this He is, you know, 
absolutely imperative that he stays out of jail because he works at our business and we need him for that. And he's a family man and he's a good person and I've never known him to be violent. Meanwhile, like he's accused of beating up her <laughs> sister. <laughs> so it's like right. not great. Um, but yeah, that's why those that's why those documents get written. But when I have just it is like Jen Shaw literally having her tagline be the only thing I'm guilty of is being Shaw amazing. How like for her to accept a plea deal and then say, oh, yeah, I'm guilty. I did these things and like try to claim genuine remorse and act like she's changed when she's literally on TV, essentially mocking the federal prosecutors. That's I can't imagine them offering her a plea deal like that she would be willing to accept because it's it's like, yeah, yeah. I guess we'll get some benchmark or if if they offer her something, we'll get some benchmark looking at Stu because they're kind of at the same level in terms of like the government's culpability list. Yeah, I'm sure Stu is working out. Stu Chains is working out. I mean, he's he turned government's witness pretty quick. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. like. Right. He can at least say, oh, I immediately realized that that this is not a good thing to yeah. be doing and I feel bad about it. Yeah. And he didn't have a tagline. So. And he didn't. Yeah. And he's not on it. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a tagline right. on the show. <laughs> so they enter their guilty plea on March 4th, 2014. And then they I just want to point out like. So that's March 4th, 2014. Then June 18th, 2014, Joe's dad passes away while he's building a rabbit coop. So they have all this other stuff going on. And then Joe actually found his dad passed away in his yard, like while he's awaiting sentencing. And then his dad was the one that signed for his bond. So not only did he have his dad pass away while he and his wife are, have both pled guilty to these major federal charges, then because Joe's dad was the one that signed his bond papers. He had to like actually file more paperwork with the court and get that reworked out. So that's just like extra stressful. Yeah. And then I think I thought it was also interesting to kind of compare just before we get to the sentencing, Teresa's behavior while she's pled guilty to like an actual federal crime and then kind of Erica's behavior. Like Teresa on the show just kind of didn't want to talk about it. You know, and she'd acknowledge it was going on, but she'd say everything was fine. And but she certainly didn't. It's it's just completely different behavior, in my opinion. Like, mm-hmm. like her scenes yeah. were like with her family, and it was just it's just a different. It's just a completely different way of behaving. Yeah, Ugh. Erica's also like just an odd duck. I don't think it gets said enough. Like she's freaking weird. Like, <laughs> no. She's not acting like a normal human. No. Uh, and I, I just, she's so weird. I don't know. It, do, I don't it know. doesn't make I'm sense. I'm excited for the reunion, though. Yeah, I do want to see what she says and how everyone's saying that she answers everything. And it'll all make sense, but we'll see. Well, we have a four-part reunion, so we'll see. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, yeah. Andy <laughs> Cohen was on Jim, Jimmy Fallon and said, I think it was like last night or the night before, I don't know, like saying that there's a four-part Beverly Hills reunion. I didn't know that. That's long. That's a, they're really milking it. They're really milking it. But you know we're going to watch it all every uh, minute. Every, every so minute. It's working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's working. Okay. So then, so all of this stuff is happening, all of these stressful things. And I mean, one thing I admire about Teresa is she 
did stay incredibly strong for her family. She never acted like she felt sorry for herself. She never broke down in front of her kids. Just completely, uh, she was very much like a rock for her family, which is really impressive. And while she's being filmed for TV, um, which I do think that is something that is admirable about her. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then October 2nd, 2014, that's the day of the sentencing. The sentencing started at 10 a.m. Joe went first. Joe is sentenced to 41 months on four counts and 12 months on another count, which he will serve concurrently. So, like, he gets to serve those at the same time. And then two years on probation. Then they are jointly liable for $414,000 in restitution to Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo Bank. And then Joe also had 10 k in fines. Um, now, when it was Teresa's turn to get sentenced, she says in her book that she began by reading a letter to the judge about how much she loved her children. And then in her book, Teresa says the judge listened quietly and said, I thought about giving you probation, but my gut, and this is a quote from the sentencing, quote, my gut says Teresa Dudice deserves to be in jail for a period of time. I have hope and I have faith that you have learned your lesson, end quote. So I think we've all heard like the rumors that they messed something up and what they messed up was <laughs> so, so silly. It like, <laughs> so, so they had to fill out their like pre-sentence and probation forms. And on those forms, they had to lay out every single one of their assets. They had to lay out their <laughs> like possessions, the same exact stuff. They, this is like the fifth time yeah. that they can't figure out how much stuff they own. <laughs> like, what in the world? The same exact stuff that they had to do in bankruptcy court that the bankruptcy trustee told them to do several times. And then it's... Nah. They deserve to... They they deserve their real time. This is... It's so frustrating. It's just... Like... <sighs> okay. They, I mean... Come on! They, yeah. So they they, like... <laughs> Like and it was like things like they they failed to list like twenty five thousand dollars worth of home furnishings. They failed to list ATVs. They failed. I mean, they just could not. There's just and there's just no excuse for it. Like if you have not learned your lesson by now, that when you are signing a, a document and turning it into a federal agency, like and swearing that it's true, that it needs to actually be true. Like, Ugh, I would never trust them with filling out forms no. ever again. Like, they got issues when it comes to filling out forms. That's, it's just ridiculous. And this is sentencing. Yeah. Come on. Show up at your sentencing with your stuff filled out. And I mean, anyway, so the judge at the sentencing said they were still missing items totaling $75,000. And when you owe the government over $400,000 in restitution, they want to know where all your stuff is. So here's another quote from the judge. She said, on one hand, I see you're a savvy businesswoman, but then you're going to tell me you don't know how to cooperate with probation. Full disclosure of your financial assets was a requirement. The lack of transparency, that's what offends the court. So for them to show up and say, we get it. We made, we're not going to do it again. We've learned our lesson, but then still not fill out these forms correctly. Yes, that would offend the court. And they're not, it makes, it makes what they're, you know, whatever Teresa was trying to say less believable 
that she's learned her lesson. I guess it, it makes it actually totally right. unbelievable. <laughs> like, right. I can't imagine yeah. being their attorney and sitting there and then because and just like face palm. Like <laughs> it's like it's like there's like a famous court transcript where this attorney is like making an argument to try to keep his client on probation and he's the the attorney is like, you know, your honor. I, yes, uh, my client has not gone to any of the required classes and yes, they have not paid any of their fines. And yes, there is this additional murder charge, but otherwise they are <laughs> doing great on probation. <laughs> it's like, right. it's like sometimes as an attorney, you have to make arguments that it's like, you have to make these arguments on behalf of your client, but you can't believe you're standing there having to make these arguments right. and you are just like, why are you doing this? Right. Can I talk about the judge really briefly? Yeah. yeah. Because I have friends that have clerked for her, and I just want to point out that she was unfortunately the victim of a really tragic, horrific crime. It, it happened a couple years ago where, I don't know if people remember this, I was like glued to the TV watching it because my friend was working for her at the time, and she had like a disgruntled attorney that appeared before her years before come to her house pretending to be a FedEx delivery man. It was an attorney? Um, intending. Yeah. Wow. Intending to kill her. And her son, unfortunately, opened the door. No, not unfortunately. No one. I mean, no one should have killed anyone. And um, her son was killed. <gasps> so, yeah, really tragic. She's still on the bench now, but I think was pushing... I think a law where judges' personal information isn't made public in their home address. So I guess it's a silver lining to a really horrific, horrific thing. But she's an amazing judge. And I encourage everyone to listen to the interview about that crime. She's just, yeah, just incredible that she's still, you know, pushing forward as a judge. Anyway. Wow. Her name's Esther Salas. Yeah. Had that happened yeah. before this how long ago was it? After. After. Wow. That's... It was like a couple years ago. Not e Yeah. That happened to Maybe a judge a in ago. Texas like a couple years ago. And when I had first moved to Texas and joined the local bar association, I went to like their big, you know, CLE thing that they have. And it was like, they had a whole presentation about it and the judge spoke. Um, and... It was she was trying to get in her car and her son was with her and they actually the person and it wasn't a it wasn't an attorney. It was a criminal defendant that blamed this judge, I believe. And her son got shot. Everybody lived. Yeah. It's just awful. Like it's so scary. Yeah, and like, yeah, there there no one needs to know their home address that should not be available. No. Back to. So this judge who is a she's a very good judge and very fair from reading all of this. Mm -hmm. So she told their lawyer that there were glaring omissions and inconsistencies in the probation reports, uh, that the couple had an obligation to be transparent. And I don't think I got that. That's the quote from the judge. So some of the items on the government reports that were left off the probation reports included, like I said before, ATVs, a 1997 Corvette, and then the household furnishings totaling $25,000. So the furnishings I get, like, you forget that you own some furniture, but a car, come on. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, it does, yeah, and those are just some of the items. Like, you, like, come on, man. So the judge says uh, to Teresa, for a moment, 
I thought about probation. I don't honestly believe you understand or respect the law. I need to send a message. In the eye of the law, it doesn't matter who you are. There are consequences to pay. End quote. So, yeah, they should have filled out those probation reports accurately. And Teresa could have possibly got, because she had no, we've, Sussie's given like really good explanations of federal sentencing guidelines, but Teresa had no priors. She had absolutely nothing on her record that would have, you know, indicated that she had any prior criminal history. She had no other issues with this. And her husband had essentially admitted on the record that he was really to blame for a lot of it. Now, like we've said, she messed up herself. But there was a potential for her to at least get maybe house arrest or probation. But because they just could not get their paperwork correct, still, the judge is like, no, you need to go to jail. Like, this is not... I'm sending you to jail. So Teresa went to jail. Crazy. So the judge, who we've said we think is incredibly fair and a great judge, she allowed uh, Teresa to go to jail first and then Joe to stay home with the children and then for Joe to uh, go to jail afterwards. And people have asked us questions about, is that normal? Does that typically happen where a judge will stagger sentences like that? And it has happened before. It's not frequent, but this is this was kind of a rare circumstance where a husband and a wife with four small children were getting charged at the same time and where the government didn't feel that either one of them were a flight risk. There was no violent crimes charged, so they weren't really a risk to society or to their family as far as, I mean, they're not good at paperwork, but they're not, <laughs> and they might do some fraudulent paperwork, but they're not like out there being a danger to society in general. So I have heard of situations where this happens. I've also, you know, even like state judges, I know there are times where they will just let people serve their jail time on the weekends. When I worked as a prosecutor, there was a judge that would do that because it doesn't serve the government um, and the state any to have somebody completely lose their job. If they will can go do their jail time on the weekends and honorably report, sometimes that can be allowed. So yeah, this does happen. Mm -hmm. It's just that this is a circumstance. The circumstances have to be right for that to happen. She goes to the Danbury Federal Correction Center Mm -hmm. um, and the judge let her stay home for Christmas. So she reported, I think it was about two, two or three months. She got to be at home and then she reported to jail. Like she turned herself in, which is another thing that you get to do. A lot of times on TV, You see people getting taken away right away in handcuffs to go to jail. But again, because Teresa was not a danger to society, I think Daniel Staub might have disagreed at the time, but (laughs) she wasn't generally a danger to society. She had, again, she had no violent crimes on her record. She can, they trusted her to turn herself in. So she goes to the Danbury Federal Correction Center, which I think a lot of people are familiar with now from the orange, orange is the new black. That's where Piper, what's her last name? I don't remember. But the the orange is the new black lady that wrote that book. That's the jail that yeah. Teresa was getting sent to. Yeah. I don't know why I took a weird deviation in my research and looked up like private versus public prisons. Ooh. That's a fascinating yeah. topic. Give us some info on that. Yeah. Okay. So I had never looked this up before, but I know I've heard of rumblings about how private prisons are Not the best. And, you know, they're not. But so private versus public 
prisons. The way that they vary is how they're run and how they're funded, the rehabilitation efforts they offer, the types of inmates they house, and the level of security each require. As the name suggests, private prisons are privately funded and they run for profit, which means there's kind of an incentive to have prisoners there. That also means that they tend to be more occupied than public prisons, um, whereas public prisons are not-for-profit and they're funded by the government. Private prisons have discretions as to which inmates they will accept, so they tend to go for more nonviolent offenders and those without medical conditions because they're cheaper to house. In public prisons, inmates are monitored and directed by state and federal guidelines, whereas private prisons don't have to report how their funding is spent. Public prisons do because it's funded by people's tax dollars. So private prisons can kind of get away with uh, get away with more when it comes to their funds. Most private prisons, for example, have lockup quotas. So they have to take in a certain number of inmates every year. And you have to imagine that in a private prison, they don't want to person to leave. There's a le- less incentive to rehabilitate the person and have them leave because they need them there to make money from them. There was a push under the Obama administration to phase out private contracts. However, under the Trump administration, it was reversed in 2017. And that's where we stand today. The states with the highest populations of people incarcerated in private prisons are Montana, New Mexico, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Hawaii. The average length of time a prisoner served in a public prison is less than half of the average prisoner in a private facility. So that's just some facts. I think it would be helpful to put where I found all this information from on our website if you're interested to read more about that. But yeah, Teresa, it was at a a public prison. So again, funded by the government, not for profit, focused on rehabilitation. I just to just to add to what Ceci is saying, I have done some research on privatized prisons and I just, if you can do, I, I, they are not good. Um, and yeah. they're not good. And one of the, I mean, people are like, oh, well, people are in prison. They shouldn't be treated well. Well, they still have human rights and that's, you know, they still have human rights, but there's also people don't think about the fact that the prison guards have to be in prison with the prisoners. Like, and they are literally spending time in prison and the way that a lot of times it's people that are they put these prisons in places where there aren't a lot of job opportunities and it is just it's bad for the whole community privatized prisons are just not they're not good and it, it's harder to sue um because it's they're just bad <laughs> and yeah we, they're not good uh so Mm-mm. if you have the opportunity to uh, vote on that issue I or look into it more so you can make your own decision, we encourage you to do that. I'll put the link. Yeah. We'll put the link on yeah. our website. It's a starting place to start your research, but just something to think about and stay informed about. Wait, can I ask you a yeah, question? Yeah, yeah. How do they choose what prison someone goes to? Oh, so that is, there's a lot of negotiation with that. And it depends on like what federal jurisdiction you're close to. A lot of times you try to get that worked out. And you try to have an order written so that you can be at a prison that's close to your family. Hopefully, no one listening to this commits federal crimes or gets accused of federal crimes. But if you do and you make a mistake, just try to get the best, most experienced federal 
criminal defense attorney you can find and get one that understands how to work out your the sentencing and then your jail time because you can make arrangements for hopefully and that can be sometimes part of the plea negotiations that you will get sent to a specific prison and that you can get to one that's closer to your family um, and that you can hopefully arrange that you stay in that one. Like if, if anybody here watched Mob Wives, great reality TV show, <laughs> that was, I mean, some of the storylines, it's like, oh, we really want him to get in this prison because it's closer and it's blah, blah, blah. Now, sometimes there's other considerations depending on the crime you committed and you can't be mm-hmm. housed in certain areas, but that can yeah. be, if you don't get that worked out, then you just go wherever they put you, which you know, could be yeah. really far away from your family and really hard for you to like have that visitation time and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that's part of it. It seemed like there was like a scoring thing with that as well, similar to like sentencing, where it's like you a number of factors are weighed, like the level of yeah security they need. Right. Like yeah, if if you do some real bad violent crimes you don't really have a lot of negotiating for where you're gonna go Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah but i think where she ended up is like a low security yeah she she has no violence in her criminal history so it there's no reason for her to go to for them to put her somewhere where she's with a bunch of other violent inmates this is from Teresa's book so she's talking about the night before she takes her you know she gets herself turned in for jail um Oh, and I was also talking about like picking a good criminal defense attorney that understands the sentencing and jail process. And they did find one. Um, his name's James mm-hmm. Leonard. And he, Teresa is kind of heartwarming as a lawyer to read this because Teresa's like, finally, I felt like I had a lawyer that was on my side and that understood. And she's, she says that he was the first one to tell her that she was going to be fine in jail and she was going to do okay. And she said, everyone else had been acting like I was walking to death row, you know, but she's like, he actually made me feel like I could do it and I was going to be fine and I was going to come out of this okay. All right. So this is the night before Teresa goes to jail. And I thought this is actually really heartbreaking. She goes into all of her like children's rooms and she writes about this in her book. And she says, "I, I got off to bed and told each girls, each of the girls to go to her room because I wanted to spend time with each one of them. So she went to Adriana's first and they say a prayer in Italian together And she's, Adriana was like really little at the time. And Teresa says, this sounds weird, but I was worried she would forget about me while I was in there because she was so little. I wanted to make sure Mm. she knew I wasn't abandoning her. And I almost like, I get teary eyed, like reading that because like as a mom of like young children, imagining her, like knowing she's not going to see her baby for like her youngest for a year and and almost a year. And it's, it's like, oh yeah that's heartbreaking i just got a new dog and i feel like every time i leave he thinks i'm abandoning him for good Aww. so i can't even imagine how it is with like a a, uh, a child that is that young Aww. but yeah so then she says she went she went into gabriella's room and she said gabriella was hysterical and she just couldn't handle it and Teresa's like, I had to go. I had no choice. So she got into bed with Gabriella and she was holding her. And she said Gabriella was asking her why she had to leave. And so Adriana thought she had to leave because mommy was going to work and writing a book. And she had told Melania and Gabriella the same thing. And she told them I was writing about prison and that she had to live there because of that. And then she just says Gabriella is just just sobbing. 
and saying, I don't understand. You go to work all the time, but you always come home. And just Teresa's feelings of like guilt and pain from this are very, I mean, they're very real and understandable. Yeah. Then she gets to Melania and she talks to Melania and says, why I'm away. I you need to be a good girl. And then Melania, she's like suddenly realizing he understands more because Melania is just asking her very like logical questions. And Melania is always the one on the show that's like the real firecracker and <laughs> yelling at the camera crew. But she said she was really, you know, Melania was like, I'm going to take care of everybody. I'm going to be a good girl. And just, again, just heartbreaking. And she said even Gia broke down and that when she told Gia she needed to be strong for her sisters, that Gia stopped crying and she, like looked at her and knew she had a job to do. And we all have watched Gia grow up on the show and be a very like poised, mature person. And it's just, then she says she goes downstairs and talks to Joe and Joe is just at the kitchen table crying, trying to cope with everything. And it's, it's just imagining her going through, because we all kind of feel like we know this family from watching them for so many years on TV and just watching, thinking about her going through and like telling them, I have, I, I'm going to be gone. I'm going away. Um, and she said, mm-hmm. going to camp. Which that's fair because they call it. Yeah, it is. A, <laughs> it's fair because it, it's a prison camp. Yeah. yeah. So her attorney that she finally trusts, um, she calls him Jim. And then Mike, a retired FBI agent, show up and he brought him for protection because there were so many paparazzi that another thing she talks about has because like there everybody like wanted to get images of Teresa, this woman saying like, you know, I don't want to live in somebody else's house. That's gross. People wanted to watch her go to jail. Mm -hmm. They she had to leave early to turn herself in and they were trying to leave in the middle of the night so that there weren't any paparazzi there. And apparently they were still there like waiting outside of the house. So she gets in the car with her attorney and with her, the retired FBI agent or whatever, and they drive to Danbury. Um, and they got there so early. In fact, that they tried to stop at a diner and thus she was sitting there, like, just trying to, like, choke down some food, waiting to turn herself into prison. They had to leave there, too, because there were paparazzi. They got pictures of her there that they later sold. So, Damn. Yeah. She can't even enjoy her last delicious diner no. meal <laughs> in peace. So she checks into prison, and she has some, like, things that she talks about, like, that shocked her right away. And I was just going to share. I thought they were interesting, so I was just going to share some of these. Yeah. I... I'm really weird. I love prison stories. (laughs) Like, there's a YouTuber I follow on Instagram or on YouTube who, like, shares her prison stories and she'll share her, like, prison meals that she used to make, like, cool little recipes where she'd, like, pound up chips and then, like, make that the base and, like, make lasagna out of it somehow. Teresa talks about that. She talks about the... Oh, really? Well, she calls it a chip log, like, the chip log that they make where they... Yeah. yeah, It's, like, all mashed up. They mash it up and, like, yeah, so... You will enjoy mm-hmm. this because <laughs> no, oh, great! <laughs> I love it. So she doesn't really talk about like the checking in part, but she she gets there and she talks about saying like you know everybody actually was pretty nice to me. She was really scared, um, but she's like you know the the couple of the people there came up to me right away and were helpful and welcoming. So she talks about she's like. A tall woman with long dreadlocks and a thick Jamaican accent. She's like, her name was Heaven. And she said, we knew you were coming. And Heaven, like, had stuff ready for her. And she's like, handed her a long printed list of what she could buy at the commissary, um, which is the prison store where you can get things. And then 
which also is another reason why you need to get a defense attorney that understands the jail process because they will know how to put money in advance on your commissary for you and get all of that stuff set up to make your time in prison not as awful. Well, the Danbury Handbook also oh, yeah. explains it. I re- I went and read through that. I know, Ceci and I both looked up. We both Googled it on our own, and we'll put it in case you're interested in the prison handbook. We're gonna, we'll post it on our um, website. It's very very interesting. It is. I. It's, it's like a camp handbook. My favorite part, though, was they said at the end of the handbook, we are hopeful that your transition in FCI Danbury will be smooth. We encourage you to take full advantage of all educational and recreational activities that are available daily. It's like, wow. It, yeah. It seems like they're doing more in their prison daily lives than I do in my normal free life. Okay. Anyway. I'm going <laughs> re- to – here's the thing that I was struck by. Like, I have nannied for five children – um, so I, even though I don't have kids presently, like I understand how much work children are from nannying for five children. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> there's several, there's several parts in here where Teresa is almost like, this is great. because like <laughs> <laughs> She's like, they do all your laundry for you and they fold it. And she talks about how when she was in jail, she's like, and then like, you know, yeah, everyone argued over the TV, but like I got to watch sex in the city. I hadn't seen anything but the Disney Channel on my TV for like years because she has all these small children. Um, so, so she was at camp. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like heaven was nice to her when she first got there, and she was one of the things she was struck by was she's like, oh, she gave me all of these things, um, and then this other woman, Nikki, shows up and gives her like all of these things because she couldn't get stuff from the commissary for like a couple days because it takes a while for your money to get on the books or whatever. So she talks about how mm-hmm. Nikki gives her uh, Vaseline so she can take her makeup off and then said, just use a maxi pad to remove it. And she's like, use a maxi pad. And Teresa was like, are you serious? And then she's like, oh, yeah, we use maxi pads for everything in here. Like we use them for slippers, shower shoes, shoe cushions, pedicure shoes, soothing iPads, uh, face masks to prevent you from getting sick, sponge to wash plastic containers. The, the sticky side they use is facial hair remover. So literally maxi pads are like the do all yeah. in prison. Prisoners are so resourceful. Yeah, yeah. So, and then I said, what's funny in her book is when she talks about, like, she compares it to Real Housewives. It's just, she says, while I met a lot of great women in prison, it's still full of depressed, frustrated, bitter, and toxic people who like to start trouble just for fun. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> she describes living in prison. She said, living in a prison dorm is like living in an unfinished cement basement. Our rooms were like dark, dreary, cold dungeons, which had very little space. It got so hot in the summer, I thought we were going to suffocate. And then she talks about how it's like super cold in the winter because they wouldn't, even though it's in Connecticut, they wouldn't turn the heat on until like late October. So that's Mm. very cold. The other thing, too, is that she talks about how the prisoners, because she was like a celebrity prisoner, were trying to like – there was rumors that they were trying to like – somebody had like smuggled them like a cell phone with a camera or like a digital camera because the – everybody wanted pictures of Teresa in her prison uniform. And she – talks about how like they actually had to lock down the whole jail a couple times and the prisoners got mad at her because they couldn't do things because they were searching for these like cameras because apparently some information did get out and you're not obviously not supposed to have that stuff while you're in jail right have you heard of like i'm I'm not on tiktok but the like prison tiktokers i am not on prison tiktok (laughs) 
You got to get on prison TikTok. <laughs> Apparently, there are like people becoming famous on TikTok in prison. I am on almost every other kind of TikTok because of my like, <laughs> you know, ADHD. But I somehow I've somehow managed to not get on prison TikTok. My phone's probably listening to me. I'll probably be on it after like as soon as I yeah. pull it up after this. Send me one if you get one after. I will. Yeah. I will. So she does say the last famous person in there had been singer Lauren Hill in 2013, which I didn't know Lauren Hill hmm. had gone to prison. Me neither. And then it's, oh, it's Piper Kerman. She said Piper Kerman came famous after she left. Um, she does say the inmates who knew Piper said that she was always helpful, funny, and really nice. She talked about how getting approved for visitation takes a few weeks to a month because they have to do background checks on everybody. And then since Joe was a co-defendant, he had limited visiting time. He could only come see her one day a month, which got changed mm. to two days a month later on, even though it's that's still not very much time. I thought it was interesting in the handbook they have, like, uh, what visitors can and can't wear. Oh, like, they have a dress code for visitors. I don't think I saw weird? that. So, like, what can, like, what's, is it to, like, prevent, like, provocative? Let me look it up. Like. Maybe. Yeah, it was, like, no halter tops, like, stuff like that. Isn't that weird? I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like. Yeah, so no see-through clothing, no shorts, that's, like, in red, short mini skirts and dresses, tight stretch pants, no spandex, no halter tube tops, midriff clothing, you cannot wear tan, khaki, orange, or green. You can't wear white or gray sweatsuits. Oh, because that's what the prisoners you wear. You might get confused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no provocative clothing and no strapless open-toe shoes. So <laughs> you have to buy a new outfit to go visit someone in prison. So Teresa's like... It was laundry day at 7 a.m., so I, I brought a small pile of dirty clothes to the laundry room. I didn't have much at this point, but I wanted as many clean clothes as I could get. Now, this was interesting to me because I used to do all our laundry at home. With four girls and so many different activities and a husband in construction, there was a lot to wash. So I love that they did your laundry for you. She has, like, an <laughs> exclamation point. Like, again, this is a mother of four small children that's like, don't have to take care of any kids. A, work out every day. She says, like... No, yeah. The programs sound great. They actually, I mean... They had music We're classes. We're not recommending jail, crafts. but like, <laughs> no, they had wellness. They had f over fifty fitness, nutrition, yoga classes, IM sports leagues, music programs. I mean, sounds pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> so she kind of gets her schedule down in jail, and she wakes up every morning, goes and like gets her, you know, the early breakfast and then she goes and works out and then she writes in her journal and then she like has her lunch and then she watches, like she does another workout class and then she like watches TV and then she like sends emails to her family. And it's like, you know, it's almost like she's it's getting like nice. a break. from. Yeah. To be clear, like the jail is gross and she didn't like it. And if this was a hundred percent punishment, it was not great, but like, as a mother of four, I think it also was maybe a little bit yeah. camp-like. But it was it was yeah. bad. It was bad. Okay, so then she says, uh, this is a chapter titled Drama Queens Dressed in Greens. And she says, if you thought the women on Real Housewives argued, bickered, and battled, well, that was nothing compared to all the drama I saw and experienced in prison. I mean, when there are more than 200 women that have to eat, sleep, and shower, and get throughout the day in one building together, there are bound to be fireworks. And... She talks about how, like, she gets invited to a party 
like her first week in jail at the prison. At the prison. Yeah. So, so when someone's like leaving, like so someone finishes their oh, sentence, yeah, yeah, yeah. they have like a going away party for them and they play music and like the, like they'll make them special food from the kitchen or whatever. And whoever's leaving will give away like their stuff to their, you know, mm-hmm. but I guess it was like a big deal that Teresa had only been there for a week and she got invited to a party and some of the other people didn't. It was just amazing. Like how some of the drama was just still so real housewives, like, yeah adjacent to that here's what Teresa says about that she's like i found out later some of the women were mad that i got invited to the party and they didn't really this was high school drama no elementary school drama you're not going to get invited to every single party in there or in real life i was like get over it it's like that sounds like Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) but when it's like they're what they're looking forward to when you don't have a lot to look forward to that's a big deal Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like... Like, what are they going to do? Nothing. Go to the sulk at the movie theater? No, you can't. Yeah. Like, it makes total sense people would be upset that you don't get invited to a party. And that Teresa did, and it was only her first week there. Okay, here's, like, the food thing, and, like, then I'll stop with the prison stories. So, one of their favorite concoctions was the potato log. And she says they would crush up a bag of potato chips, add water to that in a Tupperware container, and then mix that concoction with onions, peppers, cheese, chicken, sausage, or tuna fish, depending on what we had access to, and then cook it in the microwave. And she says it was actually pretty good, but I'm not sure I'll make that at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, watch that YouTube channel. It's, I think, like Jessica Kent or something. And she shows how they make that stuff. And it looks really good. I would I would eat it. So she's doing, you know, her workout classes and like getting really fit and the, doing the best she can. And then she's also taking like you have to like take tests and you get report cards while you're there. And she got her first report back and said they checked off my intellectual function, my intellectual functioning and said that I had no intellectual deficits and that I wasn't mentally ill. And she said what a relief. <laughs> I mean, was part of the test filling out an application? Because she probably would have not passed that. Um, she said, they said that I had excellent personal hygiene and sanitation, but that they wanted me to enroll in a finance course designed to teach me how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> so she did get sent to do that. <laughs> she doesn't say if she completed it or not. Like, she doesn't say that. So there's... Teresa's book is, I think it was like $8 on Kindle. I actually thought it was pretty entertaining. I will say their reviews Mm -hmm. said, do not under any circumstances purchase like the audible version of this book because Teresa reads it and apparently it's just terrible. Um, (laughs) But it was, you know, $8. It's an easy read and it was pretty entertaining. So I will give it that book review. Yeah. And there's a bunch more interesting tidbits, but I will let you buy the book if you want to read it. All right, so back to the legal stuff now that we're out of jail. Okay, so Teresa files a $5 million bankruptcy or $5 million lawsuit against her bankruptcy lawyer for failing to meet with her for filing before filing the bankruptcy documents. And like Ceci explained in part two, the bankruptcy is really what set up the federal indictment. Like it, it almost like because when the trustee filed that adversarial complaint in the bankruptcy, saying, hey, they're not disclosing these things. Hey, blah, blah, blah. Like, it really keyed up the federal prosecutors to, like, take a look at this. I would love to hear some feedback from our fans that are bankruptcy lawyers. 
about their thoughts on this, I'm going to post a link to the uh, legal malpractice complaint that was filed on our website. And I think I brought this up in the last episode, but like one of the things that was mentioned was, you know, the bankruptcy attorney, when he turned in the documents, didn't even like mention that they had cars. And so those were left off. And it's like, they live in New Jersey. You have to have a car to get anywhere. Like you're not getting anywhere in New Jersey without a car. Um, and also the fact that like the bankruptcy trustee had given them so many chances to get their documents right. Now, I will say as an attorney, you can't force your clients to give you accurate information. Like you can't. Like you, right. If we could, we would totally do that, but we have to rely on the information that is given to us. Right. And I, and she signed it. I mean, she did. She signed it. I, this is one of those things where some of it actually does look like, couldn't this attorney have done a better job? And I get, yeah. Like, I think you mentioned like that he let Teresa be deposed in the bankruptcy proceedings, even though he already knew the federal charges were coming. Yeah. Like that yeah. is sketch. It but it is. It's 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 kind of like but you also it's very difficult for attorneys to judge other attorneys because we we know what it's like when your client is telling you one thing and then like mm-hmm. it you have to you do your you do your best to verify but at a certain point you have to like just you have to believe your client and then you also have to do what your client wants you to do. You can't do anything illegal, but like if your client is telling you this and this and this and no, this is all we have. I mean, the bankruptcy attorney can't like go to their house and go through all of their stuff. No. (laughs) Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I thought some interesting lines from the um, malpractice complaint that I want to mention. She said, because of defendant Kreidel, who's the attorney, his failure as an attorney, Plaintiff Teresa, is now in federal penitentiary and is a felon. And it's like, well, yes, for the bankruptcy, maybe. But she still had all the other stuff, like the loan fraud and the wire fraud and all that. It wasn't she didn't only go to jail because of the bankruptcy right. fraud. So it's just like she's blaming him for going to prison. And then she also said that his negligence severely damaged Teresa's career as a reality television star. It's like, no, girl, you're still good. (laughs) She's still, yeah, she's doing okay. I mean, one thing I want to point out in defense of this bankruptcy attorney is that they, I do not believe that this bankruptcy attorney would have turned in fraudulent tax returns if they were actually, if he knew or had any idea that they were fraudulent. I mean, I like, I do not think that he, I just don't like, you wouldn't risk your own bar license. Like, to, no, you know, like it's not <laughs> right. So like they're hand, they're giving him information saying that this is the correct information and he's relying on it. And what do you like? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wonder like if he didn't, maybe didn't like articulate to them, like you have to give me accurate information or else like this is a disaster. But like, I don't know. Like it's, I, I find it difficult that to point a finger at the bankruptcy attorney when they still didn't get their probation reports. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And the bankruptcy is just one part of everything that went wrong. Right. 
Like they were definitely like Joe, like Joe had already been found like liable in civil court for filing a fraudulent uh, discharge of a mortgage and stealing a notary's thing. Like it's so bad. Like the second that thing was like added to the bankruptcy thing, it's like you better just back away from this and hope nothing else pay that guy and hope nothing else bad happens to you. I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's I don't I don't think the bankruptcy attorney is to blame for her being in jail. I, I will say that. No, I agree. Yeah. Did you come across the interview that she had with ABC News following her time behind bars? No. She said um, she said she definitely had no idea she and husband Joe Giudice were committing any crimes. Despite her guilty plea, the mother of four expanded there was no intent to commit a crime. I didn't know I was committing a crime. Like I said, I believe she had no idea. Like, I don't think she could name the elements of wire fraud or explain, like, you know, like, I don't right. think she knew, like, what crime she was committing. Um, I definitely don't think she understood the seriousness of it. And I yeah. do think she probably generally just trusted Joe to, like, handle things. I, I mm-hmm. doubt she could tell the elements of wire fraud now. And she did. And I'm not saying like, you know, I just I don't yeah. think she I don't think she if you asked her, like, what are what are the elements of wire fraud? What are the elements of the crime that you pled guilty to? I think she'd still say, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So. Oh, and then Joe still can't stop getting in trouble. So we talked about Teresa surrendered herself to, in jail January 5th, 2015. And then in April, you found, Ceci found this charge. I didn't even know this one had happened, where Joe gets sentenced for the unrelated charge of using his brother's birth certificate to get a driver's license because he's still not an American citizen, which we're going to go into shortly. We got a lot of questions about like how they got to keep their house. A fascinating thing with this is, so Teresa and Joe were probably going to file for bankruptcy no matter what. The fact that they were on TV um, maybe led to more like scrutiny of them, but they they the the fact that they were on TV did not is not why they got charged with anything. They were just mm-hmm. causing problems for themselves. On they were going to go to jail anyway um, as soon as they filed that bankruptcy. But <laughs> what? really allowed Teresa and Joe to keep the house and to pay the restitution was the fact that Teresa was very popular on the Real Houses of New Jersey and everyone wanted to see this. They got a like three episode special um for her like getting out of jail. They got uh you know, she got bonuses for filming. She got a bonus for writing this book that I just read you the excerpts of. And that allowed her mm-hmm. to pay the restitution, and that also allowed them to get out of default on their mortgage on their house. So all of these advances for the reality TV and for the book put them in a position that they would not have been in to pay off this. Like, she fully paid – Teresa fully, 100% paid off all of her restitution in federal court, all of it, for her and for Joe. It's gone. Like, she has done mm-hmm. her time. She paid all of it, and that's – she would not have had the money to do that if she had not been on TV and gone through this whole process. Right. So that's how they got to keep the house is because they got out of, they were able to pay the restitution and get out of the uh, default on the mortgage. And the federal court actually even like filed like documents with 
like in court, like naming Bravo TV to make sure that they got what was coming to them. The federal court got what was coming to it for the restitution. So that's been a fully paid off. And they were able to work all of that out because she was on TV. So Mm -hmm. that's that's why they got to keep that. But no, Angela, her reality television career was ruined by the bankers. <laughs> it's like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it was not. Should we get to the deportation? Yes. Stuff. And this is actually pretty, pretty simple. Um, uh, Tessie, did you want to talk yeah. about that? Well, so you mentioned, I think, in our first episode how he has been, Joe has been living in the United States since he was one. His parents immigrated when he was one. But he's technically a lawful permanent resident that never applied for citizenship. So you can be deported if you are convicted of a crime of moral turpitude or an aggravated felony. And he was. (laughs) (laughs) He absolutely was. Another thing I want to mention, because I don't feel like Joe gets enough credit for this. So he Joe fully served his prison sentence. But then because he was not a United States citizen and he never it's like you did all this other paperwork, but you just never got your United States citizenship. He had to go into ICE detention. And I think everybody's seen Mm -hmm. on the news uh, over the past 10 years. And so like that's. These these facilities are not like they are worse than jail, like federal prison. Like they are not well maintained. They conditions are bad in there. And Joe stayed in prison a year longer to try to like get his appeal, which was essentially futile. But like he was doing that because he I do believe he wanted to show his children and his wife that he was trying to stay. He he stayed in there. It's like, so imagine like serving a, your prison sentence and then being like able to go to Italy or going, agreeing to go to ICE. And like, that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And he stayed there for a lot. Like he was there like a, over a year. Yeah. And, and those conditions are not good. And that had to be just awful. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess his family thought he would just return after prison. But yeah, you mentioned he was detained and then he appealed the decision. And it, the first time it was denied his family immediately jumped on social media and launched a change.org petition to urge President Trump to stop the deportation. And it did not work. <laughs> and he appealed it to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and they denied it as well and said, you pled guilty to conspiracy to commit mail fraud and wire fraud, three counts of bankruptcy fraud and willful failure to file a federal tax return after fraudulently obtaining two home equity lines of credit from Wells Fargo. <laughs> so, you, so we're done with you. Go back to Italy. <laughs> right. And he tried arguing that he was not convicted, convicted of an aggravated felony offense because there was no loss to a victim exceeding $10,000. However, as you noted before, he did have to pay restitution of $414,000. So there was a, a loss exceeding $10,000. So Yeah. And Teresa was paying he his... didn't have the best no, arguments. No, And it, like, he knew... I remember watching this on the show and like even hearing like the lawyers talk about it like on the show. Like he knew he did not have good arguments. But I remember that... You have to try. His children, like especially, yeah. you know, were like... 
no, dad, we want you to stay. Like, we want you to do everything you can to stay. And he really did want to show them that he was making every effort to stay. Yeah. And Teresa was paying all of his legal bills for that. And, you know, fancy appellate attorneys are not cheap. <laughs> Mm-mm. So. No. So, yeah. So I, we had some we had some questions about, like, why didn't Teresa just divorce him? I I have to say, like, in her book, like, in also on her on the show, she just is effusive with praise for Joe and how much she loves him and how like she, she's never said anything negative about him ever. And I just don't think that that's who Teresa was. Like she has, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can agree that maybe Teresa isn't the best at, but she is loyal and steadfast to her family. And that's, Mm-hmm. just who she is. So people want to know, like, how do you get divorced when someone's in another country? And I have not been able to find their divorce pleadings, but I, it's pretty clear that Joe agreed to just a lot of things. I mean, he couldn't really make any arguments and he really didn't have any standing to ask for alimony or anything because he's been deported to another country. And it's like, you you can't, how are you going to like, execute that like how are you (laughs) he doesn't have any Mm -hmm. money to like hire attorneys to like enforce anything or even get a judgment um so the way that would work is he would agree have an attorney agree to uh, the jurisdiction for the divorce agree to the pleadings sign those things for him and then have you know it's basically like a non-contested settlement or judgment that gets entered into the court that's how that works when people aren't when people don't argue about things, divorces are pretty easy, even if you're in another country. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, like, the de- deportation, the judge said that he could never come back. Like, yeah. In an interview, he said, um, I was hoping to come home to my girls. Today, according to U.S. immigration, I was told I will never step foot in America again. And it is kind of jarring because that's all he knows is yeah. the U.S., but... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like that, like we talked about in episode one of this series, like he's been, they've been doing this for a long time. Like that's what, that was what shocked me the most when I started researching this. And I think you too, like just Mm -hmm. like the egregiousness with how like y'all are just faking documents, getting loans for stuff all the time. Like it, like for a long time. And this is just what we know about, you know? Like, we also had a couple of listener yeah. questions, like, did somebody else report them? And I don't think so. They got themselves into this trouble on their own. No, they didn't. They didn't need anyone to report on them. They filed for federal bankruptcy and then <laughs> messed that up. So they right. pretty much told on themselves. Um, yeah. So that's that's, that's that. that. I think we, we covered it all. Yeah. And now today, Joe's chilling in Italy. He seems to be living his best life. Yeah. Yeah, they were just like on the not that long ago. They were just in the Bahamas together with Teresa's new boyfriend. You know, I am confident, unfortunately, that this is not the end of our Teresa episodes <laughs> <laughs> because her and her new boyfriend bought property together. Uh, and that guy is something else. She better check those applications. She better like go double check all those documents. Like, I. Yeah, that that guy is an he's 
he's something. So I am mm-hmm. <laughs> confident that this is unfortunately not the end of our Teresa and Joe episodes. In the future, we do plan on uh, discussing the the Manzos and those types of uh, issues with their potential mafia links, according to the federal government, and um, you know some of the litigation that's gone on there. So hopefully, you guys liked all of this and enjoyed our Teresa and Joe episodes. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.